On this week's episode of the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, my guest is Ed Mason of Dward Design in Bath, which is in the southwest of the United Kingdom. Each week on the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I get on the phone, I talk to somebody in the bike frame building world, I try to help them tell their story, I record it and share it with all of you listeners out there, and this week our guest is Ed Mason of Duard Design, he's done uh, frame building instruction at the Bicycle Academy, he's uh, yeah, done great work with frame building, but now he's you know, if you looked at his Instagram feed and what he's up to, you'd see it's more CNC machining. He's got a pair of small CNC mills in his garage, and he's making just gorgeous, mostly titanium uh, frame components or, you know, bicycle components, uh, chain rings and uh, derailleur pulley wheels and bottom brackets, seat collars, all of these things doing some job shop work for other people. So we talk about all these different stages in his story, the work that he does, different perspective questions, and uh, his advice for his former self, all that sort of stuff. I hope you enjoy the interview. I'm just going to roll it. Yeah, so I guess I guess the first thing would be that I... It would be discovering cycling, really, because I went to... So when I was very young, uh, like really young, we're talking five or six, I remember getting given my first bike and doing all the things that most kids do, right? They ride, ride their bike up and down the street and then they go, well, the equivalent of going around the block in the States. Um, yep. And then uh, a, a, probably a significant factor as well is that I lived abroad when I was younger. Um, my dad's work took us to China for three years. Um, and when we were there, we were living in kind of a, like a fenced off compound where lots of expats would live. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, what would happen was uh, everyone who was about my age would ride to each other's houses all the time. You know, you'd have a curfew of whatever time it was and you, you guys would, all, we would all go, go out on our bikes. And, um, and I remember that being a kind of first thing of seeing a bike, maybe even more than just a toy, but being like your transportation and an excuse to, to get away from the house and go and meet up with your friends. Yeah. Uh, and I kind of took that mentality back to the UK um, and quickly discovered so I left uh, yeah we were out of the UK for maybe four years um, and kind of I had that biking mentality the whole time and then I came back and I just carried on whereas a, a lot of my mates that I met had moved on to rugby football hockey athletics in the summer all those other sports um, and I did those too but I kind of always had uh, this thing in the back of my mind that uh, you know I was okay at them but it was I wasn't really passionate about them yeah um and then I, I would say maybe when I was 13 or 14, I got given a, um, or I asked for a, a mountain bike, a specialized something rather hard rock, I think. Um, and uh, I just remember some switch click. So I remember, I remember going to the bike shop and looking at all the bikes and taking home a catalog and some switch flicking in my brain and suddenly realizing, oh my God, this is the thing. This is the thing for me. Mm-hmm. it's the sport for me it's the, it's the everything and kind of at that point i i definitely remember massively going off the foot sports that i was forced well encouraged to play at school 
especially rugby being the big one, because um, rugby is a pretty brutal sport and you're almost guaranteed to get injured most weeks. And <laughs> it would always really annoy me that I would get injured uh, and then not be able to ride my bike on the Sunday. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was definitely a factor. And, um, yeah, I started to take it a little bit more seriously kind of in the run up to going to uni. Um, and then when I got to uni, I kind of really dived in head first um, and started racing uh, cross country to start with. Um, and then kind of with the explosion of road cycling in the UK that happened around 2012 uh, with the Olympics and Wiggins effect and Cavendish and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, I started to race on the road. And then I realized that I wasn't really fit enough to uh, race on the road, um, but I had better handling skills than most. Uh, and also the XC scene, certainly around Bath, where I went to university, wasn't um, wasn't that strong. So you'd have to go a long way to race every weekend. Mm-hmm. But what was close was the local cross country, uh, the local cyclocross league. That was all kind of within a riding distance. Uh, and so uh, me and a few of my uni mates ended up um, being the guys who show up every week and doing quite well in the league just because we were the only ones who showed up every week. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I would say that was kind of the last uh that was, that was kind of my last um racing that i did seriously i've done kind of a bit of enduro here and there and a bit of other bits and pieces here and there but um cyclocross was the thing that i was yeah pretty good at i would say not amazing you know we're not talking national level or anything but like i could i could hold my own, own in regional races and stuff yeah um, it's more than more than i yeah. can say <laughs> those days are far behind me those days are about 10 kilos behind me now <laughs> um but um yeah along the way i kind of uh i did all the other things that any guy who's really into bike racing and maybe not so into their degree does and also ended up writing for um one of the benefits of being here in bath is the the wealth of media that comes out of bath so i'm sure you might be aware that gcn and gmbn are based here oh okay no i didn't know my sense oh, of right. geography uh, within the UK is pathetic. So <laughs> that's cool. We're, uh, I mean, everything's close compared to stuff in the States, right? So we're uh, about two hours in a car from London if you go directly west. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're just near Bristol. Um, but yeah, for some reason, what happens is what happened is that all of the cycling media outlets were based in Bath when I was at university. So uh, all the precursors to GCN and GMBN, uh, the guys at Road CC, they used to sponsor the university cycling team uh, and some other ones along the way. And what I ended up writing, um, I'd write product reviews for Road CC, uh, and I would, wouldn't get paid, but I would get to keep the kit that I was testing, oh, which for cool. a university student is like the best deal ever. Yeah, it's better than getting paid really because then you, <laughs> you know, would spend it on the same kit anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it just you know more and more of my. I was working local bike shop doing all that kind of stuff too. And, um, you know, I was just basically doing everything I could that would be involved with, with bikes. And then, um, so for reference along the way, I was also doing a mechanical engineering degree. Um, and you know, it doesn't, it, it doesn't take too much when you draw the Venn diagram of mechanical engineer and massively into bicycles that frame building is going to appear in the middle of that Venn diagram. Yeah. Um, and so it, I kind of started looking at stuff. I remember seeing some of um, English cycles work really early and thinking, oh, my God, that guy is actually doing that himself. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and then along with some of the guys locally so uh, paul who you've had on before from btr i remember seeing btrs and thinking they were awesome yeah um Curtis bikes and some others to name a few um and i kind of uh i started googling stuff and looking about and i realized that the uh, the bicycle academy is literally 20 minutes down the road from where i live in bath yeah that's wild. um like what a what a yeah. thing to just discover is in your it's backyard into your lap. insane absolutely insane uh so when i graduated from uni and i finished at the bike shop that i was working at, i had a little bit of time left before i started the the grad job that i'd managed to secure and i took that time to to go on a course and uh, and learn how to build my first frame and it was it was pretty special actually it was a it was a pretty big moment and it was a kind of um i think everyone you've probably had on the podcast has had the same moment where they realize oh i could just like you, you're allowed to just make stuff yeah you can just do that it's fine like it doesn't all it doesn't all appear magically from some factory or workshop like people are actually doing this um and it and provided you are you know what you're doing and you have a reasonable grasp of what you're doing i mean or even not as long as you put the time in mm-hmm. um you you could end up building frames uh and that was that was awesome uh, but i had a grad job to go to so i i kind of parked that for a bit and i went and did the grad job for a couple of years um and that's kind of, yeah i would say that would be the, the introduction to frame building for me it was kind of it was a it was a bicycle academy of course and then a, and then a mixture of also uh my background and my engineering degree and all the other things that i'd, that I'd done in the meantime yeah yeah so you uh you took a philip brazing frame building class at the bicycle academy was your starting point with actually getting your hands on correct yeah so i'd um i'm kind of jumping around time wise a little bit but when i so during my degree um you could you could take a year out halfway through the four years of the master's course that i did and go on an industrial placement which was very recommended to do um and i by the skid of my teeth because i didn't have amazing exam results but somehow i managed to blag it i i ended up working at rolls royce wow. <laughs> rolls royce um so famous for well it's kind of a long story but it's famous for cars mm-hmm. it's famous for jet engines and then less famous for nuclear reactors and i worked in the nuclear reactors bit oh, i see um so they, i didn't even they know build, they, yeah didn't know they did that yeah so they build um they build nuclear reactors for submarines for defense purposes, but they also uh, were, and I think still are, trying to get into the civil nuclear, like the power generation game, mm-hmm. um, which in and of itself is a is a bag of worms that involves politics and government decisions and all kinds of things that um, sure. uh, are not my forte. But uh, the great thing about that job was there are a lot of the best TIG welders in the world who work there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are a combination, and there are a lot of guys who have, have been time served apprentices, TIG welders, and then kind of moved into the offices that I was an intern in. Um, and sorry, go ahead. I could hear you asking. Oh yeah. Uh, I was just going to ask with nuclear reactors there, is it like, it's, it's the, the, I don't even know the words for most of that. It's also like a steam turbine, right? Is like that it generates heat, which creates steam, which Correct. turns a turbine. So it's it's all of Correct. that. It's actually the uranium handling stuff and the graphite and the 
the fuel rods and all of that, but it's also the steam turbine. All of it. Yeah. And so uh, quite um, comically, I, so I worked in, I worked in a, in a department called factory design and layout. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the time I, it would be fair to say that I was really, my heart was not in the job. I, the, it was the first corporate job I had. I was about 20 mm-hmm. and um, it just, it, it never really, it never really piqued my interest at all. Kind of from the get go, I was like, Oh my God, I don't, I don't really feel like this is for me. Whereas uh, now I spend all of my time laying out my workshop and my factory, uh, well, factory design is probably a bit of a, uh, a bit of a grand leap, but um, <clears throat> it's quite interesting that I do that now for fun. Whereas when I was working there, I just could not have seen anything worse Yeah. Um, to do with my time. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. my point, my, go ahead. Sorry. I'm sorry. Here I am. I'm going to talk about myself, but it reminds me of this anecdote. When I was in college, I wanted access to the engineering department's metal shop so that I could make bikes. And I was not interested in being an engineer or doing what they wanted to do, but I just wanted to get like an independent study so I could get free hours in there and like play with a bridge port. And there was one professor I met with and he had an advanced course for some of his students in undergrad where they would make a bike frame out of like Easton aluminum tubes. And he said, well, if you want access to this course, cause I had taken a, a frame building class and that was about it. I was very, I didn't really know much of anything. He's like, if you want to design and build a frame fixture, we really could use one for our course. And I, which is so <laughs> ironic now. And at the time I was like, I have no idea. Like, I don't know how to make an engineer's drawing. I don't know what CAD really is. Like, I don't like, I don't know how to use a bridge port. All I want to do yeah, is yeah. like put a hole saw on the bridge port so I can notch tubes. And yeah, yeah. anyway, now that's the irony of like coming back later. It's funny when you'll be in a position that's actually like, sort of a really good fit for you but you're not ready yet and you don't think it's the right thing for you or you totally. don't you feel like a fish out of water but then you give it five or ten years and it's actually right up your alley totally and the, so the yeah the the roundabout point i was getting to is that my my boss at the time recognized that the the office side of the job was not for me uh, he was a wonderful guy actually really cool mm-hmm. and he he um sent me away with the apprentices who were like just learning tig welding to be you know, shop floor guys who do the really high end welding on these um, on these reactors. And I essentially got chucked in the deep end with a load of apprentices one day. And it was I think it's the only day I can really remember from that year of being being a Rolls Royce. Just just being like, I mean, you know, with no experience at all at, at any kind of welding, I'd done a tiny bit of maybe a tiny bit of MIG, um, but basically nothing to uh, well, you know what TIG's like, and most people know what TIG's like. It's like mm. trying to write a sentence with two hands concurrently, but two different sentences. Yeah. And, uh, uh, c- yeah. Can I ask about, in general, your experience? Because you have a mechanical engineering degree. I've heard Correct. on the Within Tolerance podcast, sometimes people will talk about how they got involved in, like, I think this is a United States thing, but Formula SAE is like an extracurricular, you know, like race car building program. Or- sure. Yeah. Did, did so you both, um, did you get any hands-on experiences like that when you were in college? So Bath um, Bath has one of the best Formula student cars in the country, um, but I uh, certainly at the time and even now I would say it, it was really based for the guys who knew they were going to end up in Formula One teams when they left university. Um, and for me, that was never something that I was interested in doing. So I chose I chose not to do that. 
Um, I did get, I did end up getting a bit of uh, hands-on experience because so in your last year for a master's you write a, a dissertation or a thesis, um, and the the subject that I chose was uh, optimization of the piston that they use in uh, what they call the eco marathon car. So I don't know if you've heard of that before, but it, it's kind been. of it's kind of Formula students or Formula SAE ish, but rather than outright performance, it's about fuel economy and how much you know how far you can go on just like this tiny little thimbleful of of petrol that's awesome um and i think uh i think their record was something insane like 6600 mpg or something it was just <laughs> it was just unbelievable like i remember i remember doing the project and them telling me that the first time and i was thinking oh my god i've got to try and optimize this now how am i going to make it any better than 6600 mpg or whatever the number was <laughs> uh, um and so I, I had a tiny bit of hands-on there, but I, um, my overwhelming kind of anecdotal story that I give when people ask me um, whether uni is a, is a thing that I recommend or not is that I say, uh, when I graduated, I felt like I was brilliant at maths. I was brilliant at taking exams, but I just had no idea how to make anything still, really. Mm-hmm. Like maybe maybe half a day on this is this is what a lathe is and this is how it works and another half a day on the same for a milling machine mm-hmm. um but re- really nothing and then when I it was only when I started to go into graduate jobs and even then probably a year year and a half into graduate jobs that I started to um well I went to university again but the university of youtube I kind of fell down the hole of uh fell down the rabbit hole of machinist videos be that mm-hmm. uh manual or uh, CNC guys and um, yeah again I, I was really lucky in that job I kind of um, kind of forced myself or forced my way into getting them to pay for me to go on a like a short term but very intense manual machining course so they I did a week of turning and then a week of milling all manual um, up in Birmingham again with a load of apprentices which was just it's just so funny being not an apprentice age um, and yeah it, it was it was very similar to the kind of the cycling bug i said earlier you know when you find that thing and it just clicks and you're like oh my god i need to know everything about this immediately mm-hmm. the, the the exact same thing happened with me and machining pretty much um and i would say it's that same it kind of all it, it kind of all happened around a similar time within i don't know a two or three year span of of me going on a frame building course and i think it was just that switch that had flipped and said um you know you can go and you can just go and make stuff and if you mm-hmm. it, you know it doesn't it doesn't require you to have started from scratch at the age of zero and be brought up in a certain way to know how to make stuff but you can just work it out as you go along absolutely and, um, yeah and yeah. i think another element to that that's really empowering is like there's a lot of challenges you know like like i know you mentioned when we were talking about this workspace is a challenge and there's a sure. lot of things that are a challenge but I, something that's been very empowering to me is when you know, you buy an old machine that's kind of used up and beat up and then you mm-hmm. you bring it to your shop and you recondition it as much as you need to to get it running, clean it up, oil change, you know, new O-rings, whatever, and you hook it up to power and now you have this, you've given life to this thing again. It's like, that's a really cool experience too. And then like that, that every time you add another capability to your shop or another capability to your own brain and to your own hands that you pick something up it's it's just like that feeling is just addictive that capability that you can 
serve yourself and you can, you know, and then you have an idea for something and you just make it. It's just there. Totally. Totally. And I find I can only learn stuff when I have a, when I either have a real passion for it or I have a real need to make it work. Those are the two times when learning happens fastest for me. Um, and specifically the second one. So another, another really good example of kind of this sliding doors moment of you should have really paid attention when you weren't interested in this is coding stuff. Um, I found coding, so specifically we would use MATLAB, but basically anything that involved any coding, as soon as someone started talking about it, my brain would just float off into the clouds. Whereas now, uh, obviously I run machines that require code all the time. And if you're clever with that code, you can make enormous differences to how much, how much, how accurate, you know, how flexible your programs are. Yeah. And, um, it was the same thing. Like I, I kind of, um, yeah, I spent, I don't know, a day being banging my head against the wall and then it started to click and it's just, you know, it's like a exponential curve of learning as soon as it starts to click and you, you want it to work. Yeah. I can't wait to develop myself more with software in the coming years because I love making things and yeah. I love good hardware. It's like satisfying yeah. when things are tactile and they have a nice heft and whatever. They just work, you know. But um, yeah. but I also just love, you know, like a tool that solves a problem. It could solve like a, you know, a, an intangible digital problem, like an information management sure. problem or something. I've last couple of years, I use Google Sheets all the time. And lately I started making yeah. Google slideshows and then my uh, software sort of engineer friend uh, is helping me figure out how to use little NFC tags in the shop to like trigger reordering and all those. sorts of I, stuff. Um, I saw those and I, so I did the same thing. I bought some about six months ago That's um, awesome. With the, with the same intention. And I don't know whether it's my phone or the ones I bought or something, they don't work so well, but I actually, so I swapped to QR codes. Yeah. But with you know with the same goal, right? So like exactly. I, all of my tools and stuff live in a drawer, and when so certainly my consumable tools, and when I get to a certain low point, I just scan the QR code and it takes me straight to the, like you did, um, you shared it to going straight to McMastercard, like the equivalent for um, consumables in the UK, and you know you just add it to a basket on your phone, and then at the end of the day, end of the week, end of the month, whatever it is, you just press go, and it's yeah. oh my god, the day I implemented that was like, how did I do it beforehand? Yeah, I'm I'm like on the cusp of enabling more and more of that in my shop. And you imagine, you know, like you're operating a bridge port and you have like the power down feed little flip lever or you have like your rapid x-axis travel lever if you have the power feed or whatever. It's like having a lever is just really empowering, but like software could do that too. You know, you could create like yeah. a like a software lever, you know, like a button essentially or an automation. Totally. And I feel like I'm learning that that scratch is a pretty much the same itch and so i'm yeah. looking forward to developing that in myself because it it has felt just kind of dry and complicated yeah. and like who knows how to read you know any of these coding languages until you do and yeah. then it actually makes a lot of sense totally it's the quality of life stuff for me that always makes the difference it's, it's when you see the result of it so if you're i don't know if it's a shipping plugin or it's a shipping thing that makes you know, it takes you from printing out pieces of A4 paper and taping them to a parcel to them instantly appearing out of a label printer, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And you like the stuff that if you imagined having to go back to doing it the old way, it would be impossible. Um, I love that stuff. Yeah, absolutely love it. Yeah, yeah, me too. So on your in your timeline and in your story here. Uh, yeah, what's what I mean, what was the next thing I keep interrupting you? So <laughs> no, no, that's fine. Uh, so where did we get to? We got to uh, did a course. 
So I did a foundry course, and then yeah. So I spent I spent three years at this grad job, uh, and I yeah forced them to force them is a strong word, but essentially it is what happened. Forced <laughs> them to let me go on this uh, <laughs> on this machining course, and uh, so I worked for uh, I worked for a very very large French company, um, mostly famous for making glass, but they also do a bit of automotive stuff. They also do surprisingly they also do a small amount of bike stuff because they make. Um, Specifically, they make the bushings that end up in Fox forks, DT Swiss forks that oh, dropper wow. posts. They're called Norglide bearings. You often see it etched on the back of all, side, all kinds of stuff. It was etched on the back of Fox dropper posts for a while. Cool. Um, and so, unsurprisingly, as soon as I got a whiff of that, I was straight into it. And um, I ended up getting to travel to some fairly cool places to be able to work on bike-specific projects. So I got to go to Taiwan a couple of times. Uh, I would end up in the States actually quite a lot. I would end up in um, in the office that they had in New Jersey just because of the connections to a lot of the big American bike brands. And that was all really cool. Um, but there was still, there was too much of the corporate aspect to it. So I was getting a little bit, um, getting a little bit tired of, of having to deal with the nine to five and specifically also having to deal with a very long commute because it was over an hour each way. Uh, and I managed to mitigate a part of that by working four days a week, but that involved me working 10 hours a day. So it was, um, it was a bit of give and take, although it did give me Fridays. And uh, what I was able to do with those Fridays was even further deep dives on machining uh, and then as time went on I kind of kept in contact with the bicycle academy because they were so close and I started occasionally going in and just giving a bit of my time to them on a Friday um, which was it was a lot of fun it was a lot of fun to be around so Friday is the day that the students would always finish so I'd get I'd be there for the last day of their courses um, which can be uh, well uh, for the students is like a really big deal because they've gone through a, a 10 day course or a seven day course, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And they're, and then they're standing there at the end of it with a, with a bike that they can not ride out of the door, but take home and put part, put parts straight on pretty much. Yeah. And so, uh, that was really cool. I did that for a, a couple of months and then it, it kind of transpired that, um, they were looking for a teacher and, um, yeah, I mean, my, I think I was a fairly obvious front runner for for being a teacher for them, partially because of how close I was and partially because of my engineering background, but also they were looking for someone who wasn't necessarily a um, a well-established kind of time-served frame builder uh, so that they could impart all of the way that they wanted the course to be taught onto someone who was uh, capable, but not, uh, for want of a better word, stuck in their ways. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that, that, yeah, that conversation went around for a while, and it didn't go anywhere until, like I said, a couple of years or maybe a year later. And in the meantime, at this, uh, at this big uh, French company that I was working at, I, I was doing more and more machining. So I kind of slowly morphed into their R and D machinist, which was really cool. Did they have uh, CNC it. capability there? <laughs> they had a. Uh, so they had a manual machine, a Colchester student, which is like the classic lathe, um, but it was brand new. It was amazing. Um, and then they also had a, uh, it's an XYZ in the UK, but it's essentially a Prototrack um, enabled bridge port. So it was like two axis CNC. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And to start with, I was perfectly happy with manual stuff. I thought, ah, you know, you can make anything with a manual machine, right? You just need enough time. <laughs> and then, you know, uh, more and more people started asking me to mill stuff around a curve. And I was getting pretty tired of having to do it on a rotary table or whatever else you need. So I started looking into this two-axis um, proto-track machine and spending more and more time starting to write code on it and then thinking, oh, no. So we had inventor licenses there, which at the time was essentially Fusion. And so I thought, well, maybe I can post out code and see if I can get it to run. And I did. And that was like, a, oh, my God, this this thing's actually way more capable than the way I've been using it for the last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that kind of it kind of accelerated my um yeah my status within the company people people would come and ask me for more and more stuff and i would also spend more and more time of my own time making bits and pieces that i wanted for my workshop um and i think uh, probably the guys at, at the bicycle academy saw that too and realized that i could probably that you know i was picking up picking up something like that quickly i'd also be able to pick up teaching fairly quickly and brazing and welding and all the things that go with it um so yeah that must have been around 2018 that I left uh, left this job uh, in Bristol and and started teaching at the Bicycle Academy. Yeah, uh, and that, that leads me to a lot of questions too. Uh, this <laughs> week, you know, Andrew made the announcement that the Bicycle Academy is closing its doors, which is yeah. sad news. I mean, I never... I never knew anyone involved with the Bicycle Academy all that closely, and I've never been there, but it, I know it's been... Really, it's had a huge impact on so many people, especially in the UK, but you know, all over the world. So many people I know, people in the United States, and I think uh, Mark Hester, who does Prova Cycles in Australia, are some people that I can think of from distant places who've been there. But I'm sure regularly there were probably people traveling from all over Europe and beyond to take courses there. And 10 years is a pretty long time. Yeah, it, it it is a real shame. I can't really comment too much on it because I so I left teaching there after a couple of years in 2020. In fact, just around the start of the pandemic, mm-hmm. um, it, it wasn't pandemic related. But if I hadn't left at that time, it would have been anyway. Um, uh, yeah, the, um, the the teaching is a wonderful job, but it's it's not the kind of job that anyone does forever. Really, it's very intense. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's very. Um, it's super rewarding and it was a super cool job, but it was also very intense and I could feel it taking a toll on me. So I decided to, um, to go back to an engineering job uh, kind of around the 2018 time. So maybe a year into teaching at the Bicycle Academy, I kind of, I registered Dwight Design, uh, as a business and started, started thinking of, well, maybe I can do this in the future too. Um, and kind of the combination of all of those things meant that actually I was probably better off going back to a um, to a nine to five job for a bit. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, the, the pandemic came along and that speaks for itself. Right. It's uh, it's very difficult to teach students when none of them can travel to see you even mm-hmm. from 10 minutes down the road. And so, uh, yeah, it, one way or another, it basically meant that I had to go back to a uh, engineering job or I mean had to is probably too strong a word I, I chose to as well um, yeah and so I went uh, went back to a job but I'm sure you've got more questions about that time so feel free to fire away <laughs> yeah well so uh, my friend Tom Lamarch he's been a guest on this show Lamarch Bicycles yeah. Philadelphia and he had so Tom, I taught Tom you I did taught Tom yeah oh what did we do I think he came for a Philip Brazing 
it was a good few years ago now, but he came for one day mm-hmm. and I'm pretty sure it was a Philip raising masterclass and between myself and so Tom Sturdy of Sturdy Cycles was the other teacher there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, I do remember it well because it was also quite a hectic uh, pair of students that we were teaching that week. Not hectic as in they were hectic, but just the bikes that they were building. We had a we had a guy who did a SNS coupler build, mm-hmm. which was so cool. But it was, um, you know, it adds a complication to what is already quite a short course. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I do remember that week very clearly. There's a picture of me and Tom and Tom's dog, Albert, in the workshop somewhere that Tom LaMarche, sorry, me and me, Tom Sturdy and his dog that Tom LaMarche took while he was there. Oh, that's great. And, um, yeah, it was a nice picture. I remember that well. Yeah. Well, and so when I talked to uh, Tom LaMarche and maybe some other people have commented on this too, but like the way that... Well, and I've seen this too, like the way that you learn fillet brazing is very different from different sources. I've studied TIG welding a fair amount, mainly through YouTube University, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I don't think there's nearly as much variation in the way that people TIG weld. Doesn't seem to me. Like some people are faster, some people are slower, some people pulse manually, no pulse, you know, pulse with the machine, but, or like with titanium, some people do a a root and a fusion pass, and some people just go one pass. But like, I don't think there's as much variability in in TIG welding, but like, man, fillet brazing has very different techniques. And the way that I learned in 2010 in a frame building class here in Michigan from Doug Faddock and the way that Paul Brody shows it on YouTube and mm-hmm. the way that people learn it at Yamaguchi and the way that uh, I've seen videos of Steve Belinky like Philip braces. And it yeah. is that is exciting to watch, like just the flame. <laughs> and, and like, I mean, Steve Belinky can freaking brace. He's made so many tandems for so many decades. But then yeah, the way yeah. that you guys teach at Bicycle Academy, again, it has a different look. Uh, like, I mean, I've seen a lot of people it you know just raw unfinished it has a look to it there's a it's a different process i was fillet raising with my friend here in town the other night and we were trying to kind of talk about different different uh approaches to it and it's just like they're, they're so different though and anyway what is the the bicycle academy technique what like how is it different um so we teach it on the basis that um so we always assume or we always actually we always encourage that students don't finish the fillets on their bikes. Or we did, or the Bicycle Academy did, um, and that is uh, partially because of the jeopardy that can occur when you file fillets. You know, it, it takes a couple of slips with a hand file, or a, or a slip even worse with a um, what do they call them? Those air powered things, the dyno file, mm-hmm. uh, and you're very quickly wearing away not the braze but the steel that the braze is attached to. Yep. Uh, and there, there really is no place worse that you could remove steel from yeah. a bike than right next to the root of the braze. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, the, the Bicycle Academy taught that um, technique, uh, yeah, partially for that reason. And then also uh, in a way that is, so we had to consider a way, I mean, I don't want to speak for the Bicycle Academy too much because I didn't develop this way of teaching. I was I was taught how to teach it. And it's really it's mostly Andrew who kind of distilled all this knowledge um, from a frame builders that he watched when he started the Bicycle Academy. Um, but essentially, we teach it in a way that is not dissimilar to TIG welding, I would say. Mm-hmm. So you're you're keeping the flame very close. You're watching it wet out into the roots. You're feeding um you're constantly keeping the flame there you know you're not flicking it back and forth 
and you are you're following a set procedure that is very similar to the way that TIG welding is taught, for example, at Rolls-Royce, at other welding institutes around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so that we could uh, and that kind of leads back to your original question. There's no there's no set way of teaching brazing because it's never really been a documented engineering process in the way that TIG welding has. Yeah. You know, there are engineering drawings for the way that you need to weld and root sizes and cord sizes and throat. All of that stuff is really important because otherwise nuclear reactors fail and or planes fall out the sky and blah, 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 blah. Whereas um, brazing, while it did, I mean, it was used for, it certainly wasn't used for nuclear reactors, but it it probably was used in early planes. Mm-hmm. Um, but by the time that became an industry, TIG welding was definitely the prevalent way of joining metals together. Yeah. So it never really got documented or controlled in the way that TIG welding was. And hence, it kind of um, it, it, it sprung off in a number of different routes, depending on where you were, the bikes you were building, the materials you were working with, the torch you had. You know, all of these factors were never standardized. So it became very difficult to... Um, why it became essentially impossible for there to be a set way of brazing. What um, the guys at the Basque Academy did was distill as much information as they could, combine it with uh, lots of, um, or combine it with an engineering background, and then uh, present what we would, what they would call uh, a standard way of fillet brazing. And it meant that, um, it meant that, every student was taught the same thing and it also meant that it would give us the best result for every student who came through the 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 course as well yeah and i mean you could you could tell your students like if you're gonna fill it if you if you're gonna finish the fillets you know you're gonna have to do that after the course you know it's really hard to corral students from start to finish in such a short period of time so anything you can do to like you know not have them spend six hours finishing fillets or whatever totally i've I've, so on any of my personal bikes i've never filed a fillet um and that's mainly because it would take me twice as long as it does to cut the tubes braze them together and probably get the bike painted um, you know, it would take twice as long again just to file the fillet smooth. Um, and I, uh, that's not how my brain works or yeah. it's not the kind of work that I enjoy doing really. Yeah. Um, and I would say with, you, you know, if you spent, if you spent that time really putting the, I mean, it's not even putting the effort in, it's just being really disciplined with the brazing. That's the, that's the main way you can get fillets to look really smooth straight off the torch. It's, it's discipline repositioning and then a couple of technique things if you're if you're super disciplined when you're doing the brazing it's it's really not that difficult to achieve and we've had some students who, you know or who have never picked up a torch become easily good enough to not have to worry about filing their fillets wow yeah that says a lot because i mean doing you know any any of these techniques i think tig welding especially is is really hard to get you know, good with, but filibrazing yeah. too, it's, it takes a lot, a lot of practice the ways that I've tried to do it and learned it to, to develop that consistency. And yeah, I think, um, a, a thing that a lot, that's often taught that was often taught at the bicycle Academy is the, um, the line of fit for purpose. So you need to make sure that whatever we teach it's, it's fit for purpose and the, the quality of braids that they're achieving is fit for purpose. And I would say that that line is <clears throat> unfortunately higher than some, um frame builders are achieving although i don't you know i'm not going to drag anyone by saying that too much um but once you go beyond that fit for purpose line that's where you start to get into you know 
um, more of the time served. Actually, actually hitting that fit for purpose line, the Bicycle Academy proved quite simply that you you can definitely do it in a very short amount of time if you are given if you are given good feedback and good tuition. Yeah. Now, because uh, you've done TIG welding, right? Uh, yes. Yeah, I didn't teach it, but I have welded a few bikes and uh, plenty of other structures for various things. So. Uh, with you, the fillet bracing technique that you are familiar with and that you've done and taught, what, how would you compare the travel speed between the two? Like, let's say it was just like a head tube, top tube joint on a typical bike, nothing crazy or, you know, complicated about it. Uh, you know, your, your weld time for that on TIG versus sure. fillet bracing. So for a, um, for a equally competent fillet brazer and a welder, the welder is always going to be faster. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is mainly because of gravity, right? So with fillet brazing, you're manipulating a big old, not, not massive, but you know, you're, you're manipulating a significant puddle of molten brass mm-hmm. around a tube. And uh, that's kind of where I said discipline, that the discipline comes in the fact that you have to reposition it really frequently to make sure that you don't get carried away brazing, you know, downhill mm-hmm. off the side of a cliff, all the rest of it. Whereas with TIG welding, provided you're a competent welder and you you follow the arc of the tube that you're welding correctly you can you can weld upside down back to front left-handed right-handed uh now you can brace left-handed but um there's a lot i would say there's a lot less repositioning of the join that needs to happen mm-hmm. and so yeah if i were if i were to build a frame this week i mean a i would be very rusty but if i wanted to build it really quickly uh i would choose to tig weld it yeah yeah that fits with what i uh my assessment but also i mean i not like i was ever able to push fillet bracing that quickly or not to say sure. that i was ever that comfortable with tig welding that i you know i would always sure. favor just you know making sure i didn't screw it up over yeah, rushing yeah. because i never Definitely. did that much volume or you know yeah never never had so much practice because some of the hardest stuff that i've ever welded still is bike tubes like everything else that you weld that I've welded is like, you know, thick. It's like shop. Oh, that's a dream, just, isn't it? It's so easy. It's so nice. You just, <laughs> and I love just having all the power and I have a water cooled torch now and just oh, no. like being able to just cruise through just huge amounts of heat. And then like, you know, you flip up the hood and you're like, wow, that looks really nice. That's got some nice yeah, consistent man. freeze patterns. Yeah, definitely. I would say um, just because of it being what I taught week in, week out, I would actually probably, when I was doing it, as a teacher i would be able to build a bike fastest by fillet raising and so we taught we taught everything with hand file so hacksaw and file we did i think one machine miter which was the bottom bracket to chainstay miter but everything else was hand filing and i would be able to cut tack cut all the tubes fit them up tack them and braze the frame out in a day um and you know that yeah that would be that would be fairly standard practice when I needed to build myself a, you know, a quick tester or uh, what would often happen is like the week before Christmas, I would want, I would do myself like a bike for the new year. And and uh, as with any company, right, it gets super hectic around Christmas and I would always run out of time. And so I'd kind of reserve a day on a weekend or something just to, just to blast the flame out, frame out really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think like there wouldn't be much in it. Um unless you start going down the route of, of other time-saving means, whether that's um, machine mitering or, uh, dare we open the can of worms, 3D printing. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
yeah, like it's um, it's a lot faster than I think a lot of people make it out to be. If you're if you're competent and you're, I mean, the bikes that I built were always very, um, you know, simple by design. If you start brazing on a thousand brazons and doing all of the um, bottle cages and everything else that comes with it and building custom racks, then inevitably you're not going to be building a bike in a day. But uh, for a bike that you just want. So for me, it would be like a gravel bike or a hardtail mountain bike or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that would be a that would be a pretty quick process. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, I love that. It, it, uh, I like your your responses too about everything related to the bike academy, and I think that covers the questions that I can think of off the top of my head. But I want to hear more about, you know, your story then moving forward, because you you said that you incorporated or whatever the whatever the UK equivalent of that is. Sure. You, you had, yeah, registered the company. Yeah. You registered Duard Design which is mm-hmm. now what most people who follow you know you for, which is these, yes. yeah. these components that you make. And yeah. So like, what was the story there as you started to develop that? Um, so I, uh, what had I done at this point? So uh, around just before I started working for the bicycle Academy, I, uh, had bought a house with my now wife. Um, and I'm not saying I bought it for the garage, but it has a garage. Um, uh, and, and what that meant was that I could buy my first uh, first manual lathe, which quite quickly led to my second manual lathe, and then quite quickly led to my first milling machine. And then after that, I kind of took a bit of a leap of faith, and I bought a, a fairly terrible, um, as it turned out, CNC mill, which needed a lot of work um, that I wasn't capable of. But luckily, I had a friend who had built a couple from scratch, and he helped me. I mean, massively helped me uh, convert it to a Mac 3 controller, mm-hmm. which I I used for a short amount of time, maybe a year or so, starting to make parts, not really for money, but just for people who asked. And they would, you know, they would cover some beer money or something and using it as a tool to just dip my toe into, into the world of CNC a bit more. Um when, uh, and when so you that, got started at home, it was Fusion 360 that you were using, yes. probably. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd I'd done at, at university. We'd used something called Solid Edge, which was awful. Um, and then at my first serious engineering job, uh, we used Inventor, which, like I said before, is basically Fusion just with a few more add-ons. Um, and Fusion at the time was completely free, if I remember correctly. It was insane. It was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was using that, you know, posting, uh, posting programs out from that into my, uh, into my fairly awful, um, CNC mill. I, the equivalent of it would be, um, those grizzly machines that people often convert in the States. I can't remember what they're called now. Yeah. Um, but you see it all the time. It was kind of one of those, but a German company had already kind of stuck steppers on it and, and done all of that work. Uh, but the controller was unusable. So yeah, I, I converted it to Mac three and then that was great, but it had some fairly fatal flaws, um, specifically rigidity. Um, and then, uh, also it, it would quite easily lose steps and, and it was like only 3000 RPM or something, which is, it's not very fast. Um, spindle speed. Mm-hmm. And I, 
I remember making a batch of parts one night and they were going okay. And then I, I don't know, I, I scrapped like three in a row, not because of programming error, not because of something I'd done, but just because the machine was unreliable. Um, yeah. And I remember thinking, my God, I've just got to sell this thing and, and do it properly. And so at that point, I started looking into a much more uh, serious machine, which is the uh, the smaller of the two mills that now sits in my workshop. Uh, and I should probably also clarify that workshop and garage are interchangeable terms here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of I, course. My, my, my workshop is a I, – I did put it into American units. I, I saw believe. that. I was like, you couldn't possibly be thinking in terms of feet, yeah. <laughs> right? No, I am. It's eight feet wide. And it is uh, like six, I say 16 feet long. So it's yeah. two and a half, two and a half meters wide, five and a half meters long. Exactly. No, it's, I yeah, just, sing- I'm thinking yeah. like, you no, know, like you and your brain, you, you don't, oh, like, I see. you don't work off of feet. I'm like, you oh, converted no. that for, I'll do that sometimes with a customer email, like somebody yeah. in, you know, somewhere else in the world. And I just like, I don't wait for them to ask me to convert it. I just right away, I'll like punch it in myself. I'll tell them the size yeah. of a box in kilograms yeah. and centimeters. But like, <laughs> I know that, uh. The UK is both blessed and cursed with um, its measurement systems. So I think we, we're like the barrier for the States before you get into Europe. So we have all of our road signs are in miles and we drive in miles an hour and we measure in uh, we measure our consumption in miles per gallon. Wow. Um, but you buy fuel by the litre. That's wild. And if you go on a bike ride, it's kilometres for the most part. Most, most people talk in kilometres. Uh, we weigh ourselves in stone. And I could not tell you what stone is. Uh, I've always gone the kilos route because I need to compare it to people in Europe. Mm-hmm. But yes, stones are a thing which I've, I've never really understood. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. yeah, we have. It sounds you know, delightful. Sure. I would. I need to. I need to get the heck out of North America for once in my life <laughs> and go uh, go visit all these cool places and people that I've uh, sort of met. And there's a guy that I follow on Instagram who makes saxophones and does saxophone repairs in Germany. You know, like there's just all sorts of cool people all over the world that I've met in these cool places. I just need to go. Yeah, I, I want to talk really, to somebody about how many stone I am. Yeah. <laughs> have you ever left the states? I've been through Canada for travel. Oh. Like it's it's actually it's funny if you for people who don't know this, there are there are uh, separate locations in the United States that are shorter travel time if you just drive through Canada. And so having grown up in Michigan and then lived in New York state, you can save time on that travel going to visit your parents by just going through Ontario, Canada. So I've done that a whole lot of times and I've seen Niagara Falls, but yeah, no, I mean, I just haven't traveled enough. I've like been, I've been a shop rat. Yeah. 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 Yeah, It's a, it's a funny one. I I kind of have a mixed, have mixed view on traveling because I had to travel with a, with that job, the French company that I work for, the glass manufacturer. Um, and it's kind of a mixture of like, uh, oh, my God, I get to go to Hong Kong next week or I get to go to Taiwan or I get to go to all these amazing places. And that's how you kind of start out. And then quite quickly you realize, oh, my God, I get to go to an industrial state in Hong Kong. I get to go to an industrial state in Taiwan. I get to go to an industrial state in the States. Um, and, you know, you might get you might get half an hour or half a day somewhere. Like I've, I've been to New York a couple of times, like because it's on the way to Newark or because it's on the way to JFK or something. Um but yeah, like um, the, the worst one I ever did, I mean, it's best and worst. I mean, you could play the world's smallest violin here, but um, <laughs> for a for a mountain bike specific, um, so for the, that Norglide product I was talking about earlier, we got to go to Vancouver and then we went down to Santa Cruz. Wow. 
um, in the same trip, but I couldn't take a bike with me and I had no time because so everyone I talked to who mountain bike, all of my mates who mountain bike around here, they said, you're going to Vancouver and you're not going to go and try and ride down a line at Whistler. Oh man. Like how is that even possible? And it, it kind of breaks my heart that I didn't get to ride, didn't get to ride in Canada, didn't get to ride in Santa Cruz and also didn't get to at least try falling off a surfboard in Santa Cruz either. Yeah, that's tough. Um, no, it was just, it was straight work. But on the flip side, you know, we got to visit Rocky Mountain bicycles and we got to visit, um, Ibis as well. Mm-hmm. That's why we went to Santa Cruz. Both really cool companies, um, and kind of reaffirmed the fact that I really should be probably a bit more into the bike industry than I currently was at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's, uh, there's, there's a out West, man. There's a lot of good stuff. Everybody's, uh, yeah. I feel like lately I've just noticed a trend that so many of my customers are in British Columbia and so much of yeah. the, well, the conversations on the podcast, I've had more people who are from BC and there's just a lot of really cool stuff going on in the bike world there and yeah. you know, people that I know. And it's, it's a cool place. Yeah. The, the, the French and Swiss and, and, uh, italian alps are very similar for for guys in the uk like i, I see more and more well and, and in europe generally i see more and more people moving to mountainous regions to do what they do and um yeah i ski as well so it's it's a very tempting prospect for me um it's just you know moving an entire machine shop is becoming more and more difficult the more stuff yeah. i grew in it right right yeah um so speaking of your machine shop here um you talked about picking up your first is it sail or sile or i think it's it's sile or we say sile here yeah Mm -hmm. um and i bought that um for a number of different reasons it it was not the only machine i was looking at i was also looking at a haas like a mini mill Mm -hmm. which is i know you have a haas you've got Mm -hmm. the f4 right yeah nice super nice um yeah it's it's a big boy compared to those other ones it's like Yeah, yeah right yeah, it's a hell of a machine. Um, so yeah, I was looking at Haas. I was looking at Herco as well. Nice. Uh, Haas, Herco, and then Sile were kind of the three. Herco, I ruled out because they, their their small machine equivalent is is still pretty big. Yeah. Like even for the, I think you get a bit more travel, but the actual footprint of the machine is a lot bigger. And then the mini mill, kind of similar. Um, but it was more the cost of that machine. So like the cost seems really attractive when you look at the brochure and then you actually see what you get for that base price. And it's, it's not very much like there's a lot of stuff that you have to add onto it to make mm-hmm. it a decent machine. Whereas the, the style I bought were, it came with a lot of that stuff as standard. Yeah. Um, and then the really big one was it fit under the original door I had in my workshop. Yeah. Uh, whereas the, the Haas didn't, the Herco didn't, uh, and and it would run off, uh, it would run off single phase as well. So I didn't have to, didn't have to dick around with any three phase converters at that point. Yeah, that's pretty excellent. The that's one of the hard things for people who are trying to put a CNC machine in their home garage yeah. shop is just the overhead height for the moment that you're sliding it through the doorway. Generally, oh, garages okay. are tall enough to fit you know most of these machines except for the threshold of the like the the header above the door and it's like oh my god so you see people doing surgery or like they're majorly dismantling their machines in the driveway for six hours so then they can skate it through and 
yeah, that is the exact story that happened to me. I cut an extra half a foot out of the mantle of the door, <laughs> and then I and then I wood screw and duct tape, duct taped it back on once it was in, um, which was amazing. Uh, but yeah, that, that day of moving the machine in, um, I can't I can't fully recount the tale because it's the most stressful day of my life. Like having to try and, and move that thing, uh, it was far too close to falling over than I can mention. Really, oh man, it was awful. Um, so yeah, that was uh, that machine I've had for I think three years now, and it's been a great machine. Like it has some it has some drawbacks as any small machine will. Um, and then uh, actually recently I don't I don't know how up you are on their lineup, but they've uh, they've launched a new version of it which looks really amazing. Mm-hmm. Looks like a drill. Thing's awesome. That's excellent. I actually I went to the IMTS trade show in Chicago oh, yeah. in September, and that's like the you know machining industry. It's more than yeah. just machining. It's like industrial trade show that's actually yeah, like two I, I hours video every year <laughs> yeah it's like a two-hour drive from me it's really close and i nice. hitched a ride with my friend I, I went to that show and back for peanuts it was amazing and Stephen belinke had asked me to do some uh scoping out of some sile machines and tell me what i thought of them and i yeah, just yeah. forgot and i assumed they were there yeah. and they had a booth but i just forgot to go look so yeah, I felt kind of bad. now what do you think for the listeners of this podcast who might be interested in putting a small cnc in their garage pros sure. and cons of these machines uh as you see it um so the pros, uh, the, the obvious pro is cost. They are significantly cheaper than uh, some of the other big name brands. And they are, um, for the money, they're equally capable, right? So you are getting better value for the machine. I would say the drawback is number one, excuse me, uh, delivery time. Mm. And so they're made in Shanghai uh, and then they have to sit on a boat and travel all the way around to you. So there's extra... Um, there's extra cost involved in that. There's extra logistics involved in that um, because you, depending on where you are in the world, you might have a an agent or a uh, a distributor who can handle a lot of that, or you might be handling it yourself. Uh, I can't remember what the deal is in the states. I think it depends on where you are in the states, possibly. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the UK, uh, once again, I massively lucked out. The distributor is in Bristol, which is like 20 minutes from here maybe half an hour um a guy called george and he is fantastic and so that kind of swayed it a lot it kind of gave me the confidence that even though it was a machine with maybe a bit less of a supporter um a support network like Haas or someone like that I, I knew that i had my distributor just down the road so that would really help with any niggles i had um but yeah that i would say the main the main drawback is the fact that it will take a long time to get here and the fact that you are you won't have a service tech as readily available. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, uh, if you do come across a problem and it's outside of warranty, you're going to be fixing it yourself, um, which, you know, it is not dissimilar to a lot of machines, um, but that, you know, so for your Haas, for example, even if you're out of warranty, there's probably a Haas tech that can show up pretty quick. Yeah. Um, at, at, at great expense, no doubt, mm, but yeah. they can still show up and get you running right. And and in the game of machining, spindle on time is the key. Yep. Um, so if you're having to fix those problems yourself, uh, depending on how serious you are, that that can be a real issue. Um, yeah. For me, it, it it mainly came down, like I said, it mainly came down to the fact that it was what I could afford and it was also what I could fit. Yep. Um, 
but I, I've done a couple of Ask Me Anythings on my Instagram, and every time uh, someone asks, would you recommend a style or not? And I, I basically call it back to, if I was in the same scenario again, with the same amount of money again, uh, I would buy the exact same machine again. Yeah. Like, it, it's... Um, 90% of what I do is titanium and uh, that tiny X5 has machined a lot of titanium very effectively. So it may be small, but it's it's surprisingly capable. Yeah. So on, I, I don't know their lineup, but on these machines, what they're like 30 taper machines? Yeah. Yeah. And so they're th 30 taper, um, the... Uh, it depends which control you get because that dictates which which drives you get. But essentially, they can be single phase, both the five and the seven, mm -hmm. uh, which is obviously a massive boost. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so my my small one just has I think it's got a ten tool auto changer. It's got ten thousand RPMs. It can rigid tap. It's got I, I've fitted probing to it after the fact. It's got a tool setter. Like it's it's a pretty sweet machine to be honest. Like it yeah. does all of the things that I would expect it to do. And I have set it up and left it running unattended for you know four, five, six hours without without much of a hitch at all. What are the the XY travels on those in millimeters? Ooh, uh, it's the one I have is really tiny. It's like less than three hundred in X and one hundred and sixty Y. I can't remember in Z. Um, but the new one that they're bringing out is more like 300 by 200. And then the seven, the bigger one I have is like 400 by 300, I think. Okay. So yeah, small machines. Yeah, definitely. Cause yeah, I think not, like 300 millimeters is like 12 inches and so yes, four, 400 yes. would be like 16. So yeah, it's pretty small, but, yeah. um, but you know, you can be smart about the way that you fixture it and, Absolutely. and make it very effective. Yeah. Uh, which, and and like, I don't know how far to go down on this frame building podcast. How much of a CNC deep dive do we want to end up on here, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's fine. I mean, it's it's all shop talk, and um, yeah. But uh, the um, also, you know, like cutting titanium. I think you know the old school mentality is where like you're hand coding, and you want to you you know you don't want to write a million lines of code and do a, a bunch of like uh, arc center point calculations and all this trigonometry and stuff. So like you just use bigger, heavier cutters, you need a bigger, heavier casting, you need more horsepower, you need rigidity. Yeah. And then now with modern cam software, you can just have a higher spindle speed and you can nibble at the material with a small yeah, diameter tool. Exactly. Yeah. And so like, as long as your machine can read the code and it can, uh, process that and, and not, you know, kind of herk and jerk and trip over itself or doesn't have memory limitations, then Typically, you can you can make any light duty machine very effective. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And that's that was definitely the case for me. Like all of the products that I sell now, with the exception of chain rings because they were too big to fit, all of those started on that small machine. Um, and yeah, just being by by being smart with different cutters and and uh, and writing stuff that could run unattended. Basically, those are the those are the ways that I made it work. Yeah. Now. Um, your new machine has a fourth axis, or do they both have that? Or uh, the the new one does. I wish the old one or the the smaller one did as well, because uh, I am an absolute convert. Yep. Um, but yeah, no, I specifically bought I bought that mill. Um, well, I bought it for two things. I bought it first of all so that I could make the chain rings that I do, and second of all so that I could move or or reduce the number of operations required for quite a few of my products so yeah. i'm thinking specifically c clamps 
mm-hmm. seat clamps have this annoying bolt hole down the side of them. Uh, and I was originally doing them in four operations and uh, a fourth axis immediately removed two of those operations and let me do 12 at a time. Yep. As well, which exactly. just, it's just incredible. It is. I, uh, years ago, before I had a fourth axis, my friend Jeff Tiedekin, who's Yetiman01 on Instagram, oh, yeah, yeah. he I was on his him, yeah. podcast, and I visited him in California when I went to the NABS show in Sacramento, and he had mentioned to me, he said, yeah, fifth a- five axis is cool, but like four axis is where you really make your money. Or so. He said something to that effect, <laughs> and it really depends on the situation, because sometimes yeah. you need five axis, and sometimes you don't even need fourth axis because you're just doing big flat plates or something, but Tops. anyway... I thought about that, and then when I was buying my machine, there was a promo, and I bought a fourth axis. And then later, after like three months of having my machine, I finally started to crack into it and use it. And I just would never buy another machine like that without a fourth axis. And I found for me that, you know, like on like on a machine like mine for like fifteen or probably like fifteen, eighteen thousand dollars US, you can add a quality fourth axis. On some machine brands, it costs more than that, but it depends. But anyway, and I got it for less than that because there was a promo. But that's yeah. like not an absurd amount of money relative to the purchase price of the machine. And it just makes it's transformative for small parts like that seat clamp where you hit it from multiple sides. Yeah. And then the thing about a five axis is that usually the benefit of like being able to hit it from more faces means that you can fixture fewer parts at once because yeah. you would be occluding your tool access. And so anyway, and, and five axis isn't just like another $15,000 more. It's like another 50,000. It's a whole different ball game, isn't it? Yeah. And so anyway, it's just, I always like to advocate for the fourth axis because it's not as maybe sexy as like five axis seems so much more limitless, but people don't always realize that it's like, it's harder to fixture a whole bunch of pieces with five axis. And, yeah. And then a lot of parts, if you're creative, the fourth axis workflow is tremendously effective. Yeah, and then so if you combine, I find if you combine that with um, uh, modular work holding. So I know you guys probably use do you use fifth axis stuff. Yeah, uh, I use Lang stuff because I've um, heard that's better. It's German. <laughs> it, uh, I've never used I've never used fifth axis stuff, but we have a I have a really good Lang rep who mm-hmm. I mean if I order it, it comes basically the next day. Yeah. Um, I mean you pay for the privilege of that, but. Uh, <laughs> it's it, it does come the next day um and I, I find that if you have if you have modular work holding like that actually what you can do is so let's say you're doing a one-off uh, so i do quite a lot of job shop work as well i don't just make my own products i do mm-hmm. um one-off jobs up to you know small batch production and i find that a lot of stuff i will do um one by one and i'll do as much of the machining as i can on the fourth axis and then just take the whole vice off the fourth axis with the part still in it uh turn it upright and put it put it on the bed of the machine in another plate and then you can hit that top surface that the fourth can't Mm -hmm. because 99 percent of the work that i do is uh what's called four plus one which is essentially uh, sorry uh it would be three plus one technically on a fourth axis and then uh, moving it across you, you're just repositioning stuff you i'm very rarely doing a you know a complex multi-axis yeah crazy toolpath mainly because i'm too cheap to afford the fusion extension <laughs> that requires you to be able to do that yeah <laughs> i've been i'm coming up on three years that i've been programming fourth axis stuff and i have never once programmed an a-axis feed move like it's all just no. positional stuff and not yes. to say that there isn't a use for that but like i haven't needed it and that's not the way that i engineer parts in my brain so like 
totally i'm the exact same yeah yeah um yeah it's it's cool it's i love the cnc stuff i think when i have a guest who is in the cnc world it's worth talking about that some even though this is nominally a frame building podcast because i know that like shop people are still interested more or less and can follow along but um but yeah i mean now with the parts that you're making I don't want to. I don't want to get too far into the nuts and bolts of machining because the parts that you make are freaking gorgeous, and oh, I'm sure that uh, a lot of your customer base is also like frame builders too, right? Because like you, what are you yeah. gonna do with your beautiful handmade frame? You're gonna like adorn it with beautiful handmade parts. Totally. Yeah. So I see a lot of I see a lot of business from guys who um, get either get titanium frames built or you know buy high-end production type frames uh it seems to be a real thing uh, which i totally resonate with and i'll come back to in a minute um that if you buy a titanium frame then all of the components that are on it go on it also have to be titanium i'm a str- <laughs> strong advocate of that uh-huh. yeah no it's <laughs> that's a guy who sells mostly tie stuff <laughs> <laughs> yeah um yeah, so I, like I get a lot of those guys, um, and I've actually got quite—I would say—I've got a reasonably uh, loyal fan base of guys who who are really um, awesome, and I, I chat to quite regularly. Um, and then I also get—I um, get guys who are building, uh, you know, high-end production. So they'll take a high-end production frame, be it a let's pluck some names out of the air, like a, a specialized tarmac, like the top S-Works edition, or uh, the equivalent from Trek or a, an equivalent mountain bike, um, and they will, they want to, they want every part to be super unique, super custom, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, and quite a few of those guys are starting to find my product as well, which is which is cool because that, that's um, it's what I used to like doing as well. I used to like you know collecting together really cool bits for a build. Uh, you know, and make sure that every single thing on my bike was what I wanted to be there rather than what just happened to be in stock or what happened I could get my hands on. Yeah. Um, so I resonate with those guys a lot. And that's kind of led into other work where uh, specifically with a guy in London who um, runs a, uh, very similar to me, you know, runs a um, a bike workshop where he is kind of pushing the pushing the boundaries of, of performance, whether that be, uh, replacing bearings with ceramic ones, upgrading bikes. Uh, he's got, he, he kind of does work with a couple of professional teams here and there. And he occasionally says, I like this product, but I think it could be better. And he's, he's not necessarily an engineer, um, but he'll send me a part and say, can you make, can you redesign this to make it X lighter, B stiffer, change this dimension, whatever it happens to be. And so I've got quite a good working relationship with him. Uh, and I'm starting to see a bit more of that business come through where I get guys who are looking for someone who uh, has a bit of product design experience and a bit of machining experience um, to kind of help them get the last however many percent it is out of their project and get and get prototypes made. Yeah. Yeah, with um, you make some uh, derailleur pulleys, right? I do. Yeah. Is that a performance thing? I mean, I obviously it's a cosmetic thing. They look gorgeous, but uh, is that yeah, like you're, you're able to get a performance benefit too? I would say there's not. Um, so from the pulley itself, there's not a performance benefit per se, other than obviously if you're replacing a plastic pulley with a titanium tooth pulley, the, the thing's going to last a lot longer. I see. 
Um, so, so there's a benefit there. Um, one of the main benefits actually comes from the bearings that I use, I would say. So I don't use uh, ceramic bearings. That's an entire can of worms that I don't necessarily want to open right now. Um, but I use um, stainless bearings, which I've been using since the first bottom bracket I made. And I, uh, I just think that nothing else lasts longer. Um, they're so well sealed. And even if, you know, even if you do get a, a certain amount of moisture penetrating them, the balls are stainless anyway. So, you know, the, the rust factor is much, much slower than it would be in a in a standard ball bearing. Um, and so th there is a performance benefit in that. I would argue that the bearings are going to last longer and also the teeth are going to last longer. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, you know, I'm not I'm not uh, I'm not one of these guys who's claiming 30 percent watt saving or uh, all of that stuff, because um yeah, like again, it's, uh, it's it's a bit of a can of worms, and I think a lot of those claims are somewhat dubious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, have you done like I know uh, Josh Ogle, who does uh, Ogle Component Design? Mm -hmm. I've seen him do some stuff with derailleur, like uh, like the cage on the this the arm cage swing. Like yeah. I mean, that's a piece of stamped metal. Uh, yeah. Is that something you've touched, or I'm I'm just thinking of his work. It's um it's something I looked into, um, but uh, I kind of shut it down because it, it got to the point where, uh, as I'm sure you're aware too, but standards in the bicycle industry are a nightmare, right? So the way that yeah. those things connect to derailers are, are a bit of a pain. And um, I would say in the back of my mind, I, I would rather spend the time designing an entire derailleur than, than uh -huh. necessarily designing a load of cages to fit a derailleur. Well, I would like to see that, and I'm guessing I'm not alone. <laughs> yeah, it's um, there, there's a couple of products and components that I would really like to um, do a bit of a deep dive on. The problem is you need the time to do the deep dive. Yeah. Uh, and so this quite nicely ties into it. So the other, one of my main customers, uh, who I mentioned before, I believe, uh, is Tom Sturdy, who runs Sturdy Cycles, mm -hmm. um, who uh, I don't want to blow smoke too much because he's a mate of mine, and that would be unfair but he is building arguably the most technologically advanced kind of bespoke frames going at the moment wow um he we we chat on a very regular basis so i do all of the machining for his so, uh, do you know anything about tom at all tom uh, yeah no I, I think i follow him i definitely know okay, who he cool. is cool um so he for anyone who doesn't know he builds um titanium frames using 3d printed lugs as at all of the intersections between the tubes yeah. Um, which, from a frame building standpoint, especially from a guy who's hand mitered a lot of miters, uh, <laughs> is a dream because it's all straight cut tube. Mm -hmm. um, I, I won't give away too much of all of the other amazing stuff that he does, but uh, it, it, it's super impressive. Uh, but what it means is that so all of those prints <clears throat> arrive at his without what's the best way to say it? no so they, they arrive at his and some of the interfaces are not good enough quality direct from the printer specifically uh, yeah. uh, bottom bracket threads and also all of the interfaces in his cranks um so all of those lugs currently and all of those cranks currently that go end up on all of his bikes pass through my shop first and i, I put all of those interfaces into the into them um and so between me and him kind of circling back to products potentially in the future we've talked about a lot of things where you you could print near net shape and then machine finish kind of complex yeah geometries be that 
for example, a derailleur or other parts of a bike frame, um, maybe ones that hydraulic fluid flow through, um, you know, you could you could print in a lot of those channels and then and then just do a little bit of finished machining to uh, to achieve what you need to achieve. So here's a question out of left field, mm-hmm. but you made me think of this. At Seven Cycles in Boston, I believe they mm-hmm. have something like a 1983 Mori Seeky, like MV45 Junior or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. It's like an old semi-enclosed three-axis CNC mill. Mm-hmm. And uh, and what they do is they'll weld the entire bike frame. And I believe, and I could be wrong on some of this, but I believe that they have a fixture that lives on the table of that machine and it just has this one job. And what they do is they like toggle clamp the frame in there. And, and yeah. because titanium experiences so much distortion during welding, what they can do is they can start with a really chunky, like the ID is way smaller than it ought to be. But then they yeah, have a CNC cycle and they use, they, they do a boring cycle and they open up the ID of it after the weld distortion. And yeah. then they cut the threads if there are threads after all of that. And so that achieves like two things. Like, first of all, you're not welding on thin wall, which is maybe easier, and then there's less distortion. But then, you know, like, what do you think about that with these near net things that you're putting the precision into? If the workflow supported it, and I understand there's probably a logistical consideration of like, sure. it's maybe easier for Tom to take the parts that you've already prepared and weld that into a frame and then do final machining versus, and, and, and in his case, it's possible that the heat is not right on the bottom bracket shell, so maybe it's not even distorting in that place. But it, it, exactly, yeah, that's the benefit of his. Now that's um, okay. I didn't even realize that until yeah. His, so that's that's process, brilliant. Yeah. So I, I can machine into very very close tolerance all of the features that he needs. Uh, it's specifically on the bottom bracket lug bracket lugs because there's no welding that happens after the fact on the cranks. God dang, um, that is awesome. And the, yeah, and the so the welding heat is. Um, yeah it's nowhere near any of the threads so he doesn't uh as far as i'm aware he doesn't read the threads after weld or anything they just a bottom bracket just goes straight in well there you go that's you know i think i kind of by the time i was getting to the question i kind of worked <laughs> it out in my head but that's pretty awesome i do um, i do love that approach though having an enormous milling machine to do that one job is um it is something that is much more likely to happen in the States than it is in Europe because the, the amount of floor space that that takes up is, mm-hmm. would be unacceptable here given how much, uh, yeah. given how much unit rent is. Yeah. And like Boston is not cheap, but you know, sure, they, yeah. they, they have a whole factory there and this is my understanding of their process. I've seen it in a YouTube video or something. I'm not sure if that's current anymore or if the machine yeah. actually runs double duty doing other things, but yeah, what a cool setup. I like the idea of it for sure where it's like, it, it relaxes the tolerance on all these other steps and it makes everything else go more smoothly. And then, you know, cause like you imagine like a titanium bottom bracket shell that you buy from Paragon machine works. So you have a precision machining operation, then you mail it to the shop, then you, you build the thing and you try and control your welding on this thin walled yeah. thing. And then you have and to really, machine it again. Come on. Yeah. And you're really, especially with a bottom bracket, you know, you're only welding on 180 degrees worth of that shell. So there's no way that it's not going to turn into a banana shape. It's just, mm-hmm. it's just inevitable. No, no matter how well you control the heat or how well you um, preheat or do any of that stuff, like it, it's just, it's always going to happen. So yeah, um, I mean, that's what's, I'm a huge fan of kind of that near net shape thing. And um, another company that it kind of springs to mind again, it's not exactly the same, but uh 
Hope Technology in the UK, they do a similar thing. You know, they they produce an unfathomable number of parts. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to talk in CNC language again briefly, they have this enormous warehouse full of Matsura MAM 72s, which mm-hmm. like the big five axis machines. I think they have seven of them just lined up. Wow. And there's like two guys who just walk between all of them reloading parts when they need it. Um, but the, the point of that story was that they make stuff in such a volume now that they get custom aluminium extrusion kind of in near net shape for that's awesome uh, brake calipers and brake levers and some other stuff. Um, so yeah, they they basically they're just bolting it into a vice and doing the finish pass, which that's is amazing. It's just so cool. Now that reminds me of something neat. I don't know if you ever would have seen this, but uh, if you follow Paul Component, they used to have. I think that now it's. It's live milled on a CNC lathe, I believe Patrick told me. But mm-hmm. but they have uh, some of those little thummy adjusters for cable tension on the brake mm-hmm. levers. Those were actually like an extruded rod. So if you look at them, uh, like they have cool. a shape to them. But they would yeah. just put that on an old two-axis lathe and they would machine them on the lathe. So then now you don't need live tooling or any fancy lathe. And it's actually cheaper per pound. There's less material removal. The only caveat yeah. is that, you know, the die, they have to make the dies and you have to order in some lot minimum in order to get that material. Sure. So they're probably buying like, you know, five years worth of bar stock at once. But it's just like, I remember learning that. I think I was asking questions at the trade show booth the one time and they mentioned that or something. And I was like, holy cow, that is amazing. Yeah, <laughs> that's really cool. It's when you see and I think, the, um, Yeah. Uh, I think... Um, and that's cut. So like you said, the the problem with that near net shape in the past has always been that it's got to be an enormous quantity of castings or, you know, extrusion or something. And I think that's the that's the space that 3D printing is going to continue to fill more and more in the, in the coming mm-hmm. years, because it gives it, it gives you that flexibility of of not having to start with an enormous billet. Uh, let's pick another product out of the sky. Let's say you want to machine a cassette one mm-hmm. piece. Yeah. Um, imagine the size of the billet that you'd have to start with to get a cassette out of it, which really some companies point. already do. Yeah. Uh, whereas you could print, you could print that entire cassette plus, I don't know, a millimeter on all surfaces or something oh my like God. that. Imagine and this zip around it. I, you're just giving me an idea that to me feels like a really smart guy idea that I've never considered before. <laughs> but like, so let's say, uh, you had a five axis mill and you were going to load your, your bar stock in a lot of people like to use a dovetail vice, and so that gives you a zero op. You have to like prepare the material where you're not really doing mm-hmm. that much machining, but you're just putting these dovetail features on the block so that then yeah. it can like be held. You could three or you could, yeah, you could have like a titanium part that was a cassette shape and that you could build into it some sort of work holding features that were optimized for yeah. like grippability and that, you know, you could have all different sizes of cassettes, a parametric 3D model where like the work holding features were the same size and mm-hmm. then it would give you perfect purchase on it. And then you just had a finishing operation that would deck that off or something. It's wow. Yeah. You're really so, getting the gears turning in my head, the, the literal <laughs> gears turning. Study and I have had these conversations quite a few times and we already do uh, without wanting to give too much stuff away. We already do similar stuff with some of his crank, um, crank bits. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I have like a custom probing cycle that goes in and measures and we have, we have features that are printed into those already so that the probe can go and measure them before they get machined away, uh, which is super uh, on my end. It's super useful. And it's also, uh, it's also useful for him because we've designed them in such a way that they print really reliably, you know, depending on the part orientation. So like, it's a kind of, it's a best of both worlds scenario with that. And it means that, um, 
yeah, the the entire crank milling process is is super automated now, and it just kind of runs in the background while I do other stuff. I am so fired up about manufacturing. This is so cool. <laughs> <laughs> this just makes yeah. me want to like just. I, I haven't been doing a whole lot of product development or design lately. I've been working on all sorts of other things, inventory management. Yeah, you know, it's just you're, you're running a business. You're wearing a million hats, but like. Yeah, uh, yeah. This has really got some some gears turning in my head. Some uh, some uh, some rear cassettes are just spinning around in my brain right now. Oh, tell me about it. Yeah, we um, it, it's it's been on the list for a long time because I mean, I've designed a chainring, right? I've designed a set of jockey wheels. It's not it's not that far a stretch, but um, it is it, it, in the same in the same sentence. It kind of is that far of a stretch because mm-hmm. there's shifting gates and pins and all sorts to consider. Uh, not to mention all of the stuff that we've just talked about as well. So it's um, yeah. it, it, it's one I'm considering, but there's a lot of other stuff that I think I can tick off first that would be uh, more beneficial to the business in the short term. Yeah, isn't that always the case? Yeah, it's always it's like the, they call that shiny object syndrome when you want to do the one that sounds like intellectually yeah. challenging or fun or interesting or that's like a, it's a symbol of like the kind of company that you want to be and whatever it is but you know it's like a lot of times or uh i talk with uh a recent podcast guest uriel uh who does austere manufacturing and, and oh, he's, yeah. al- he's always emphasizing that you know like a lot of times you might want to just like buy another shiny machine or something but like <laughs> what might be possibly more beneficial to your business is something that doesn't cost much money at all but it just you know requires yeah. you to kind of allocate your time differently or you know, do that totally. that nagging thing that you've known you known you needed to do for so long, or whatever. Oh, man, all the time, all the time. I, I feel that I feel that pain a lot of the time. <laughs> um, it's kind of a necessity, right? When you're in such a small shop, you've got to make it work really efficiently. And that, like, I think I do a pretty good job, but I also feel like there's a thousand more things that I could do where it's just you know, like you wake up, you walk in there, you turn the lights on, and you just start pressing go on machines straight away, mm-hmm. and and you just become the operator. Like that's a really common. Uh, one of my favorite, one of my many favorite uh, University of YouTube people is uh, Jay Pearson. Yeah. Um, just because of the way that he, um, I mean, he implements lean so well, but he, it, like, it's not really, it's not really about calling it lean because I know that can turn a lot of people off so quickly. It's more about the fact that it's like, I want to work for the business, not, not yeah. be the guy who controls every single thing and stores all the information in their head. Yeah. And he's got it so nailed. Every time I watch one of his videos, I'm like, oh my God, I need to do 8 million things to be more like that. Yeah, he always says, uh, he's like, I own the business, but I'm not the boss. The process yeah. is the boss. We all work for the process. We all develop the process together. I really like that sort of Definitely. mentality that it's like, you know, it's not about everybody else trying to like, make him so happy and you know whatever do what he says exactly it's like i think it's it's big of someone in charge to acknowledge that it's it's you know it's 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 about the the output of the whole thing yeah it's the idea that you could hire someone and then within half an hour of them working there they already know how to run it because it's so obvious yeah i just love that yeah Um, i've been doing where i would like to be I've been doing all these assembly slideshows and packing and shipping slideshows just using Google Slides, and I'm really fired up about that because you could put a QR code or an NFC tag or or even just you know a link or whatever, but you could you make it readily easy to find these instructional slideshows. And mm. one of the things I really like about them is compared to like a YouTube video or some other platforms is they're like so incredibly editable, and so I think yeah, in the future. And like something I've been putting off for years and years, right, is like with my tube bender product, 
I really would like to have just like a sort of getting started guide, like a user guide or something that ships with yeah. the product. And, and it would be really cool actually to get it printed and like bound into like a little paperback book or something. That's a cute little book. Yeah, That'd yeah. be cool. But, but anyway, even as a stopgap, if not the final solution is just to make a really nice Google slideshow that's linked and then put like a QR code in the box or something. So that that way, basically it's immediately editable because when you make like a youtube video and i've done this where you make a youtube video for like as a resource we've done this a bunch of times like we have one for the argon gas add-on kit for our fixture so if you want to plumb on argon yeah. gas um and it's great it's like a 12 minute video that explains stuff and but if you wanted to just toggle through it faster you can key through the video but like slideshow is actually really good for that and then if you need to update the information because we've changed the kit or improved it or realized that people are having the same question every time you can't really edit a youtube video and so yeah that's it it's almost like you want like you want a hybrid of the two right you want something that's a, a slideshow like you say but then it has a series of gifs or something that are just yeah. the salient like really obvious technical points yeah that if you needed to edit it you, you you'd only have to shoot it over the you know the course of a minute rather than having to shoot yeah. edit process do all of the stuff that comes with the land of youtube mm -hmm. yeah and i love youtube but like it's just it's not it's not very editable or like a no. peeve of mine is when i know the video creator got like a hundred comments the week that they uploaded it about some flagrant error but they never yeah. took the video down and edited it and it's like i can understand why they wouldn't because it's hard to edit but then on the other hand it's like you're perpetuating all this false information like you have a responsibility yeah. to everybody and for yeah, it's also the uh, it's the curse of YouTube now um, is the fact that all videos are twenty minutes long when you need thirty seconds of information. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's hard when to I'm be, trying to learn stuff. It's hard to be brief. I find I don't mind a long video if I'm if I'm like invested in just like learning mode for the fun of it. But yeah. YouTube is also it's like possibly the number one search engine or it's top three probably people go to youtube yeah. to answer questions and so when i'm just looking for like you know how to perform this one simple function in mac os or something and then like it's a five minute video i'm like no <laughs> yeah i know that's it that's totally it yeah as a reference it needs to be quick yeah let's talk about 3d printed metal parts a little bit more um like some of the challenges and some of the payoffs that you found through that process. Cause you send, you, you design things I imagine, or, or are you just processing parts? Uh, I mostly process stuff. Uh, I have worked, I have designed some stuff in the past specifically. Um, what I would like to claim now is the world's most expensive flat pedal that never got made. Um, <laughs> it was unbelievable. Like it, it was such a cool idea. I, I basically last Christmas I got COVID and I was stuck in the house for two weeks or something and to um to keep me sane i decided to go on a bit of a designing spree um so i talked to talked to a couple of printer suppliers <clears throat> guys i knew who were into cycling and sent them a couple of designs and we went back and forth to designing the supports and all the stuff that goes with it uh, and they actually printed one um which failed or something i can't remember um but they did all of that before they told me the price Oh wow! Uh, and then when they told when they took, uh, luckily they printed it for f the the sample for free. Um, but then they told me the production prices, and I thought, oh my god, this is going to be getting on for a thousand pound pair of pedals. Uh, <laughs> and like, I, I'm all for I, I'm all for making stuff and making sure that it it generates the value you need to be able to continue the business. But ain't nobody buying a thousand pound pair of pedals. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so yeah, that one that one kind of died. Um, so yeah, no, I don't do I don't tend to do a lot of design, but what I do end up doing or I have done a fair amount of is uh, fixture design to be able to hold these quite organic, quite tricky parts. Uh, and I really love that challenge. Um, and I I also like the niche that it's created for me because um, I think there's a lot of machinists who are still um, stuck in their ways is probably too strong a term, but who are a bit uh, apprehensive to touch that kind of stuff just because it's new and it's a bit it's a bit uncertain. Um, so yeah, spending the time to create you know adaptable fixtures that can accommodate. Um, the inevitable variability that you have in a print uh, has been something that I've really, really enjoyed doing. Yeah, and it's got to, got to a point now where, like I said, with these cranks, um, it can be a crank of any length from like 150 up to 180, and it's the same program, same fixture. That's great. Um, just just bolt it in and press go. Do you have like macro variables that get adjusted with the probe, or that you adjust, or is it just that it's held by yeah, like so the, um... the pedal spindle end, and that's all it touches? So it, um, it is a macro variable that comes up and asks you what size you've put in and what, what whether it's drive side or non-drive side. Um, that's the information it asks from you. And then uh, it goes off and it probes and it checks that the information that you've entered is correct. That's awesome. Uh, and then uh, basically from there, it's got like four or five different work offsets and it just runs programs for each of the work offsets to do the axle taper, to do the whether it's a drive side or a non-drive side to do the chain ring mount or the preload and then to do the, the pedal thread at the other end. That's very cool. And then you use a thread mill so that you can do both right hand and left hand threads with the same tooling. Correct. Yes. And also there is absolutely no way that I'm going to try rigid tapping that in uh, <laughs> yeah. expensive titanium parts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a part that it's, it's always scary when you're touching parts that have like a lot invested in them already and that are not like immediately definitely. replaceable with just like another cut off of the bar. Yeah. So I, um, I did in the early days, I think I had one or two of, of Sturdy's BB lugs that I did scrap, and uh, let me tell you, it's not an experience I want to go through again. Mm-hmm. It's um, like the next, the next fair few are free after you scrap one, which is a is a painful, painful game to play. Uh, yeah. So here's a question. You know, let's say you're a machinist, and your skill mm-hmm. set starts and ends with you know subtractive metal processes like that. Mm-hmm. You might yeah. be threatened by uh every year metal 3d printing gets better and cheaper and more people seem to be adopting it there seems to be whatever and you could be kind of like worried about that and yet it's really cool technology and i don't think that most of us you know machinist types that's not where our skill set starts and ends you know like for for me Mm -hmm. i've like identified my sort of chain of what i do for people is like it starts with like kind of knowing and understanding a customer base and then you know, coming up with a product and how that's going to help someone bringing that to fruition involves a million things, not just machining involves a lot of CAD and design development iteration. Then it's customer service. Then it's managing inventory and packing and shipping and finish work and, you know, marketing. And it's like a million things. So like to me, you know, if over time the machining becomes maybe like, you know, less viable somehow. And I don't think that it would be for the kinds of things that I make or not completely. Mm. So like, I might want to embrace it for its own things, but like, I mean, what, what would you add to that sort of discussion about, you know, how it's changing the landscape? Cause I know you love machining too. 
Sure. Yeah, I think um, I think you are right. We're going to see more and more of it. It is going to become cheaper and cheaper. I think there will. Uh, I, I think we have a lot of time left before machining becomes anywhere close to redundant um, compared to the the rise of 3D printing. I also believe that that day probably will come at some point where the vast majority of stuff that we see that's made in metal is printed, not machined. Mm-hmm. Um, but we are talking long, long, long way. And I think the main the main thing that um, makes me say that is that material properties are still um, not as predictable as they would be from a you know a process that's been around for. I was about to say thousands, but that would be mental. A good few hundred years, um, you know, right? Like hot rolling bar, or, or or extruding it, or you know, all of the stuff that comes out of forging metal, for want of a better phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, so, personally, for me, uh, it doesn't worry me. But that's because, like you, I have a lot of skills outside of machining, specifically the design and engineering skills that came with my degree. Um, I can see why if you are a time served machinist and all you've ever done is run machines and maybe do a bit of conversational and or hand coding of machines, that would be potentially more of a worry. Um, But I think that worry is not one that's going to be seen in the next, uh, let's throw a number at it, 20 years. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it is interesting <laughs> to think about how many parts it's like, oh, well, that that couldn't really be a printed part because of this reason. But then it's mm. like, well, what if you think a little bit more open mindedly about that part? Yeah. Maybe you could change some of its properties and you could change some of its proportions or you could add, you know, a final machining operation but it was near net or something and then you know that it comes you know instead of being like five percent of parts now it's like 25 percent of parts are a good fit for 3d printing or something uh that's pretty interesting because like i haven't really spent that much time trying to wrap my brain around it but i think there's a lot of potential um, i think we'll see a lot more in the short term i think what the big shift will be is that we'll see a lot more and we already can you already can see them is printers that are also capable of machining in the same setup that's uh, that's something i've started to see i think it's it's still fairly new technology but it does exist where you know the print head does a certain amount of work and then it swaps heads to a machining spindle and machines to a much tighter tolerance than the prints able to achieve and then it swaps back and carries on mm-hmm. printing um that's the way that i see much more manufacturing going um and i would say that's going to be the uh that's going to be the cutting edge of 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 what takes more and more work away from machinists probably yeah. yeah and when i look at machining versus 3d printing too i think like for my product line i mean partly i've engineered things the way that i have because i come from like manual machining and then into yeah. cnc but like my parts are mostly blocky and cylindrical looking parts most of them like there's not massive metal removal that completely changes the shape there's not a lot of thin walls And so, you know, those are like bicycle parts, essentially, are a really good candidate for 3D printing because they need to be lightweight. And uh, because, you know, so like with with a subtractive process like machining, you're just hogging away all this material, which is just scrap and scrap time, essentially. And so when it comes to big blocking, blocky parts, and then also the dimensional accuracy and the surface finish that you get. Yeah. So they kind of serve different different purposes. Yeah, it'll be it'll be. um... 
Well, bicycles are often often the kind of hotbed of where stuff ends up going afterwards, right? Because it, I remember you, I was listening to a podcast recently where you said a very similar thing, where it's it's kind of aerospacey. You're joining yep. points in space with tubes, but those points, you know, you, you're doing it in the absolute lightest way and stiffest way and various other ways possible, which is, you know, it's not dissimilar from uh, struts that you see on cars or aeroplanes or space equipment whatever it happens to be yeah um so you often do i mean it's not a direct correlation but you often do see that kind of technology across not just bicycles but then moving into automotive aerospace blah 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 blah, blah, all the rest of it yeah um so, so i would yeah i would definitely say that that's going to be a case although i do um it's just that cost i think that cost is going to take a long time to come down and there are going to be industries uh, the one that always springs to mind is like oil and gas where you just need a lot of metal and there's no way that that's ever going to be um printing it from scratch is never going to be as efficient as starting with a lot of metal and just removing the small amounts the relatively small amounts that you need yep. to remove um so yeah like i said it, it uh, it's not it's not ever going to dominate or completely eradicate the need for machining, but I, yeah, I do, I do definitely see it um, becoming more and more prevalent for sure. Yeah. So, here's another question: You do a lot of beautiful mm. titanium anodizing. A lot of our mm -hmm. listeners might be uh, interested in titanium anodizing the bicycle components sure. they have, or they might be titanium builders. Um, and we did a little bit in our shop with that, but that wasn't really something that I had my hands on quite as much. What have you found to be like the key to getting beautiful titanium anodizing? Uh, it, it is, I was talking to Sturdy about this the other day because he was building a, um, so we had bespoke recently. I don't want to go down this on a tangent, but we had bespoke recently and he had a time trial bike there with a crazy anodizing fade on the front of it. And, um, that took a lot of goes, I can tell you, like a lot, a lot of goes. Um, it's been, uh, so for small parts like I do, I find it to be a fairly consistent process by having uh, a really good etch solution, keeping the etch solution at a reasonably warm temperature, mm -hmm. um, and then having a relatively controllable power supply. Um, those three things are essentially all you need to be able to anodize titanium which is again part of the reason why i choose to make as much titanium stuff as i do i can control the anodizing process in-house yep um but when you move on to bigger things and especially if you move on to things such as uh bike frames where you've got one grade of titanium welded to another grade of titanium with potentially Ooh. a different filler yeah that becomes a challenge and i can't really speak on that but i can speak on the number of swear words that tom has sent me when he tries to anodize frames <laughs> it's a good index yeah yeah the uh the tom swear word index to... <laughs> yeah it's 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 um it's like the, it's like the mcdonald's hamburger index that you get it's like a universal thing across the board mm -hmm. uh it's the frame builder swearing index is very similar that's funny. um so yeah I, and like so the main limitation for me is um the size of thing that i can anodize so unsurprisingly a lot of people have asked me to anodize a chain ring for them mm -hmm. um but the setup that i have physically isn't big enough to be able to etch an entire I chain see. ring in one hit um and i could expand that but that would involve buying more of the etch solution which is like just the chemically most horrible thing you could imagine so i'm, I'm trying to avoid that for as long as i can <laughs> or also on a, on a chain ring i would argue that that anodizing would, would wear off the teeth pretty quickly so it would end up not looking that great gotcha yeah that makes sense <laughs> um 
All right. So I wanted to ask you, I'm just reading through all these bullet points and I want to make sure that we have time for all the important ones. Um, sure. So I wanted you to talk about your specific niche and your, especially your ideal customer for the stuff that you already do for the direction that you want to take your business. You could even say for your job shop parts, like who is and isn't mm -hmm. a good fit. Like let's say listeners think that they have an idea for something that maybe you could help them make. What makes someone yeah, the right fit for you? Um, so it's, it's a, it's often someone who is fairly deep into the cycling industry, right? They've, they've spent their time, um, maybe coming up through the normal ways that you do buying, you know, fancier and fancier bikes because you're pushing the limits of what you can do and what you want to do. And also how nice your bike wants to be. Um, I'm offering a, uh, a high end product to, to those people, but I'm also offering a product that is, uh, engineered to last. So titanium, one of the main reasons that I use titanium is because it is so hard wearing, whether that be as a, uh, the teeth on a chain ring. So they're going to last significantly longer than an aluminium one mm -hmm. or be that, um, just the kind of thing that you see. So with aluminium parts, the thing that often really annoys me, and you can ask a lot, especially mountain bikers, uh, is heel rub on cranks. No matter what surface you have on an aluminium crank, at some point, if you get heel rub, you're going to your crank is going to look really horrible. Yeah. Um, with titanium, that's I mean, I don't make titanium cranks, but there are other parts like seat clamps and be another good example, bottom brackets that will see a certain amount of kind of grinding wear on them. And quite quickly, if they're made of aluminium, will look less than shiny with titanium. Uh, a, they're much more hard wearing, so they're not going to look as crap as quickly. Um, but B, even when they do, they're, they're actually very easy to bring back up to a nice finish. Mm -hmm. um, whereas uh, doing that with aluminium opens up a world of problems with corrosion and also uh, not knowing when to stop. You know, it's so easy to just take way too much aluminium away quite quickly because it's such a soft material. Um, so, yeah, no, I made uh, I, the products I designed are kind of are made to last and have been proven to last pretty significantly as well. Um, in the same vein, I'm very aware that uh, the price that my products carry uh, is attracting a very small percentage of the people that follow me in my story. Um, so I am, I'm also pursuing some of the products that I make um, in, in aluminium, uh, specifically seat clamps are going to be the first one that I uh, try they're out for hard anodizing at the moment actually so I'm, I'm getting a batch made currently or getting a batch anodized that I've made over the last week um, and I kind of want to explore that a bit I think um, I think there are there are products that I make that I would not want to make in aluminium um, and I'm thinking specifically my bottom brackets because of the way that they're designed um, fun fact another uh, prominent brand has, uh, I would say, copied some aspects of the design of my bottom brackets, um, uh, but chosen to make them in aluminium, which is not a route I would pursue just because <laughs> of the wall thicknesses that come with them wow. uh, and the sheer forces that they experience under load. Um, but I'm not going to name them because I'm not that guy. But yeah, it was a it was a slightly disappointing press release to read. Um, so yeah, there are there are products I'm considering bringing at a more affordable cost, so that I so that some of the people that follow me and might potentially want parts that I design, but 
can't necessarily afford them they they have an option to to purchase something from me yeah um which i think is a uh, uh well i've i've kind of floated the idea to to a few of my closer customers and they they seem quite keen on it so um it seemed like a worthwhile batch to pursue and see how that goes uh, and then if we're talking if we're talking job shop work or we're talking development work um basically anything that is bike related uh, i have a pretty good um background across all aspects be it frame building be it component design be it geometry be it whatever uh, i'm always open to questions i think the the thing that i can't deliver on is high volume um just by the nature of the workshop that i run the machines that i have uh i ha- i usually like i have quoted for higher volume stuff but i i would say that on price i nearly always lose out um, due to the, the the setup that I have. And I'm kind of fine with that. I'm much better and actually much more engaged when I do smaller batch work, development mm-hmm. work, kind of working with... So I did... Um, they haven't launched yet, so I won't say too much, but I did a I did development work, kind of machining the first five of a, of a component through with a guy who, who reached out to me through Instagram. Um, and he... Uh, it was really fun to kind of... Um, so there was a bit of 3D machining on it, and it was fun to be able to spend the time with him and say, "Here's this strategy. Here's what it looks. Here's what it looks like. Do you like that? Would you want that to go into production, or shall I do something else?" So that he had a couple of. He's got a fair few samples now that he can he can take to someone who's much more tooled up to to produce hundreds or maybe not thousands, but certainly in the hundreds of them, mm-hmm. and and have a have a sample. He's like, "This is the kind of finish that I'm looking for." Um, I'm very good at spending the time and also kind of giving input um, on that front because I, I feel like often you get guys who have um, they have like 95% of the idea and they just need the help, you know, whether it's designed for manufacturer or maybe just a couple of small tweaks here and there um, to kind of get it over the line and then get it ready for production. That, that's the kind of work that I really enjoy doing. Yeah, I think that that's really a valuable service too because it's so hard to find the right professional relationships that can totally. give you those kinds of things like i'm thinking like what if my anodizer that just did standard type 2 sulfuric black anodized for the tooling that i make what if they uh actually you know would do that kind of thing like what if, what if they would just communicate with me more about like well yeah. here are the options or like this particular part it doesn't quite fit on our racking but like yeah if we just totally. had this like one little piece or i don't know if you could do something like this or like uh, we, we custom yeah. made this like none of them have like their own fab i mean i'm sure they charge three times as much if they had their own like fabricators to build stuff but yeah but you know there's some guy who's really who's really annoyed about one part that you make because he has to hang it a certain way or something and if it was just like a millimeter shorter in a in a dimension that doesn't even mean anything to, to you it could completely uh-huh. change the way that he he deals with it yeah um yeah that's kind of the that's kind of the role that i've always filled in in jobs that i've had as well because um uh, so I work as a design engineer at various companies and um, kind of gain a reputation as the guy who's also machine stuff. So people come to me with drawings and say, what do you think about this? Can I can I do this, that and the other? And I'm starting to. And so like a, a common thing, a common question that I ask pretty early on when people come to me with a RFQ is what's the design intent for the products? Mm-hmm. Um, because if you if you put something down in front of me and I don't know what the design intent is, I can I can say, well, you need to increase this radius here. You need to do this, that and the other here. But actually what they're trying to achieve could be achieved in a completely different way. And so I kind of straddle that boundary between uh, design engineer and machinist, um, which 
it's quite a nice like there are guys who do it but it's surprising how many people in the engineering industry are either one or the other mm-hmm. yeah no i i think that's a real value and you know especially if you can connect with the people for whom that's the right fit then like that's the magic of niching yeah. down or whatever is <laughs> like yeah, you're the exactly. perfect fit for someone who needed that and you can think about like old school cnc machining where you had facing and 2d contours and you know 2d contour uh chamfers or maybe you had like a corner rounding end mill and you did like a corner radius and for those you can just make a solid model of a part but when it comes to 3d machining tool paths like you do on a lot of your parts that kind of thing has become you know i mean that it just it it engenders like it's a certain look it's a texture you can't you can't call it out on a drawing no you can't really and that's what we found so specifically with this guy I was mentioning earlier who I was doing development for in kind of his first batch or first pre-production batch. Um, it was really nice to kind of to make the first one and then and then, yeah, run a tool path, send him a picture and say, what do you think? He said, oh, I don't like this. I don't like that. And then I can reprogram it while I'm standing at the mill, run it again, send it back to him kind of in real time. Mm-hmm. And that's that's super, super uncommon. And um and like the thing is, you either pay through the nose for someone who already has got it all dialed down exactly, or you pay, you pay what's affordable, and it's kind of a, a bit of a shot in the dark. Yeah, you know what's funny too is um, when I talked to Devin at Like and Precision, and uh, he said, you know, like a lot of places in I don't know, like aerospace or medical or something where you might be doing parts with three D machining, you know, they yeah. want the step over so tight that you can't really see that it was three D yeah, machined. Yeah, yeah. And then other industries, it's like, no, that's the whole point. Like, it looks cool. And totally. uh, it's like knowing your customer and, and, and especially if you feel like you can, you know, if they want that feedback and they want that connection and that's, it's pretty cool. Yeah, it's it's, it's it, like, those are my favorite jobs by a long way is when you're, when you are, you're providing a service, but you also have a little bit of input. That, that's really fun for me because it feels yeah. like I'm contributing more than just the finished part. Yeah. So here's another question, because uh, mm-hmm. we, you know, I had given you this sort of pre-interview notes, and one of the things I say is advice to your younger self or others in a similar position. And I don't know if you're looking at the spreadsheet or if you remember off the top of your head, but sure. but I think that's an interesting point to talk about. Yeah, definitely. So um, I kind of glazed over it earlier on, but I so I um, my early education through to uni through to um, job. The, the upbringing that I had meant that there was a very much an expectation that you kind of follow this set path. So you go school, focus really well on exams, don't think about anything other than exams, get the, get the results you need <laughs> to go and do the degree that means that you will definitely get a nice secure job. Um, and I kind of went through the motions and then I came out of the university, I came out of university with the grades that I needed to go and get a good job thinking, you know, I don't know if this is for me. Uh, and when you're 21 and retirement age is looking more and more like 70 plus, uh, that's a long time to do something that you don't think is really for you. Yeah. Um, so I think that kind of led me down the path of looking into frame building, looking into manufacturing, because I found it harder and harder to um, to reconcile the fact that I might be sitting a desk, at a desk for 50 plus years. Um, you know, I would talk to guys in engineering jobs who had sat at desks for 30 plus 40 plus years who were still moaning about the stuff that I 
was already moaning about, you know, a couple of years into the job. And I thought, oh, God, I can't. I don't think I can sit this out. And I, I think the real takeaway for me from that was the fact that the longer you leave it, the harder it gets. Right. That's how corporation yeah. companies work. And no, that's how they the, keep you. You get like you get a little too comfortable. It's the frog in the boiling water. It's totally, um, oh, totally. man, it's a trap. And I mean, the way that they keep you comfortable really is with 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 pay rises that are just above inflation. So you always have what feels like enough money and occasionally you'll get a bit more. You get a bit further promoted up the line. Um, and, you know, things like having a mortgage, settling down, having kids, all of those things make it more and more difficult to make that leap. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, my, my advice to my younger self is um, it, it's never too late, but the later you leave it, the harder it gets for sure. Um, so, yeah, make sure that what you're doing, uh, this is me talking to myself, now make sure that what you're doing is what you're really interested in. Otherwise, it'll be very hard for you to excel at it. Um, compared to all of the things I've ever been interested in, yeah, um, and I've chased. Uh, I would say, well, maybe maybe it's a bit too much of a uh, a pat on the back for myself, but I would say that I uh, am far better at the things that I pursue now because I really care about them. Yeah, compared compared to the things that you know I might care about ten percent of it, but then there would be ninety percent of it where it's like mm, I'm not I'm not super down on office politics or yeah the commute or um the the thing that always happens in engineering careers is you get more and more technically apt and then at some point they promote you to be a manager uh-huh. um, and i don't know why that is the case because um without exception i would well, there are of course exceptions but i would say that engineers do not make great managers because they are technical people and not necessarily people people <laughs> yeah it's like in order to manage engineers you probably need to know something about engineering so that for sure but like yeah that's a tough one it it is and it's it's kind of it was kind of my stepping off point for my career because i could see that the only the next step for me would be to start managing people and i uh one of the benefits is of 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 this is is knowing what you're good at but also what you're not good at and i know that i would not be a good manager of people um so that was kind of a it was kind of another push for me along with all of the other stuff that i've just talked about too you know they say you get you get promoted to the level of your incompetence like you get, <laughs> you get promoted and then you're doing good and they promote you again and you're doing good and they promote you again yeah. and then you didn't do that one so good so you just stayed there and it's like yeah well, and if you do really badly you just get promoted sideways to a different department that was that was always the thing that would happen too uh-huh. But it's like um, you were doing good and you got promoted out of it. And then you stopped getting promoted finally when you got to one yeah. that you weren't that good at. It's like they should just take you down a peg. And maybe sometimes sure. that's how it works out. But it's like, yeah. It's uh, like, very rarely. You'd be surprised. I um, know. Yeah. Middle management is the, I would say, is the, the most inefficient part of any big corporation like that for that exact reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. So it's coming up about the time when uh, I had told you you could expect to be free of the call so if you need to get going <laughs> right. we can get going if you want to talk for a couple more minutes i'd bring up a couple more points yeah no go for it i'm, I'm good i've got time okay so um so machine roundup we already talked about your two cncs uh, mm-hmm. a little bit and we could talk about those some more uh you have a resin and filament printers and a phase converter uh you got a freddy coolant vacuum i picked one of those up recently those are freaking awesome they Uh, are how has that changed your shop life so yeah i went from um uh, it's called a titan wet vac and it's a very awful very cheap very bad 
vacuum cleaner uh, that claims that you know it can suck up uh, dry stuff and wet stuff all at the same time. Whereas what really happens is it sucks it up for about ten seconds and then complains that it's full. Um, <clears throat> and I was finding that as I start to run more and more parts, as I start to run, so you know the machines today, one of them is running for six hours straight, the other one was running for a bit less than that. Um, my chip bins are starting to fill up pretty quick, uh, and my uh, ability to shovel them out is uh, reduced somewhat because I have to do a thousand things all at once because I own a business. So yeah. I um, I reached out. I, so I went to it's called Mac, uh, which is the equivalent of IMTS in the UK last mm-hmm. year, um, and kind of walked around for a bit and was looking at machines that I'll never be able to afford, and then maybe some machines that I might be able to afford one day, uh, and kind of fell across. Or I saw a couple of freddy's or something or just by you know by being on social media you, you kind of see all this stuff come up uh so i sent out on the on the way home from mac i think i sent out an email just to their you know their their customer service thing um saying hi i've got no idea if i can afford one of these i don't know what the deal is but i'd love to know some more information because it feels like the kind of thing where um it would be really good to be able to to be more efficient at not only cleaning up my chip bins, but the the other benefit of a Freddy is that you can filter your coolant. So you can Mm -hmm. suck all the coolant out of your sump and it will run it through a filter bag, which when you run titanium like I do, and you do a lot of thread milling in titanium, you end up with a lot of tiny, tiny chips that kind of form a sludge that that runs around in the coolant. So I was looking at ways to be able to um, prolong my coolant life. So I reached, and, and this Freddy seemed like a good fit. So I reached out and it turns out that the, uh, the guy who runs it, Simon, is an avid cyclist. So I thought we're onto something here. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but uh, unsurprisingly, he told me the price, and it was not something that I could fork the cash out for straight away. And it, he was very kind and gave me a bit of a deal. Um, I paid full price, but I didn't pay full price all at once. And um, I, man, that thing is has transformed the way that I deal with chips and calling in my tiny workshop is it's really impressive so he he is well worth having a shout out yeah i uh i dealt with him too and the story for me was that i i thought they're cool machines and they're a lot of money and um and i was like well you know i don't know if i'm at the point where i can justify one and then the used machinery dealer i was going to buy a vertical bandsaw from they had a freddy coolant vacuum turns out it's from 1991 it's really old and uh and oh, you looked, say, oh, I've seen ones that are twice as old as that. I know. I well, and they're not probably <laughs> as common in the United States, the oldest ones, yeah, but because yeah. they're made in the UK. But anyway, I bought it. It looked kind of rough, but it cleaned up beautifully and it needed some parts. And I reached out to the distributor in the United States and I'm sure they're nice people, but like the price they gave me and I don't know, I just, mm-hmm. I wasn't really digging the experience. And, and then yes, uh, Simon heard about that and he's like, oh, that's no good. And then he kind of like bent over backwards to help me get equipped so that, because I mean, Freddie does a lot of cool like refurbishing on their machines anyway to like keep the old ones in service, which I think is just yeah, cool yeah. in the first place. But that then um, I did a lot of that on this machine, and it's just it's so nice. I I thought of it as more of a coolant vacuum, and now yeah. I'm seeing it almost as more of like a chips solution. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. like what I didn't realize immediately is that like if you just had like your hundred dollar you know. Uh, hardware store shop vac sort of thing that can do wet stuff sort of but like only really if you put it in wet mode and then it's only good for like basically clean 
like homogenous liquids, or you can yeah. do dry stuff with like a filter paper but yeah, like which is what, like the, no good for machinists who have exactly. a load of chips mixed in with a load of coolant you want exactly. to be able to separate the two and that's yeah. where it's really incredible yeah so you can do both at once and i just that's yeah, pretty sweet so i'm like excited about just being able to like suck chips off of the bridge port and off of the horizontal bandsaw and just like cleaning little things but then also be able to filter coolant. yes pretty cool pretty cool thing definitely definitely very cool uh yeah so i think that's most of the things i wanted to talk about and yeah, anything else that you think we should cover? Uh, does anyone ever ask you questions? Like, what's next for you? What's your, Oh, feel you free to. Next? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, I that's not the point of it for me, but I like talking. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, so, I, like, I can see where you are now. I, I, I Like, we've already talked about space and how space works in Europe versus in the States. I mm-hmm. could not be more jealous of the amount of space you have. It's I, – I won the lottery. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, – did you hear the story on how I found the building that I'm in? Uh, if I did, I can't remember it. So feel free to tell me again, please. So years ago, when I was like in 2015, when I was 25, I bought some manual machines and I loved it and it changed my life. And I did a bunch of manual machining. And then later when I got a CNC mill and I ended up running out of space in my tiny shop when I wanted to get the Haas. So I sold my bridge port and I said, I'll get a mill again later. And then last year... I was ready to buy another bridge port again, and it's not too hard to find like an old bridge port, you know, locally in, we're in sort of the rust belt here. And so anyway, I was like looking around and I made an appointment to meet this guy in town who had a, a machine and I go to his building and it's a pretty cool part of town and I'm looking at the machine and he's like offering me other machines and I said, is the building for sale? And he's like, yeah, I'd like to sell the building. And then that's how I found the building is it was a retiring machinist. He owned the building the last 20 years or something and it's 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 just like perfect you know like i still rent a little apartment which i'm like kind of getting tired of and i never really had a great shop solution but god dang it i got my dream shop it's it's two or three times bigger than i really need at this point so i think it's got lots of room for me to grow into it's got oodles of power it's got good access for trucks it's just it's got two bathrooms it's it's remarkable i feel like so incredibly blessed I think not only is the price something that I can afford, but just like you just don't get the opportunity. Like this kind of thing is a rare configuration for a building. It's it's rare totally. to find one that's set up this way, that's zoned appropriately. I'm not paying for like re- retail store frontage. You know, like it's not like it's yeah. a good location for a store, but like it doesn't need to be. It's the it's like I'm paying just for what I need. It's amazing. Yeah, where I am is uh, an absolute nightmare for industrial space to the point where you you end up wondering whether you should move house and just hopefully find somewhere with a bit of land and just start again and build an even bigger workshop. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's like the main, I would say it's the main stumbling block for whatever the next round of growth will be in my company because I, I haven't, in the two years that I casually, you know, check the listings, I think in that all that time I found one place that would be genuinely affordable and genuinely worth moving to um so yeah it's a it's it's an interesting one for me now i think there are other economic factors that mean i probably won't move in the near future um but when it does come up it's going to be a really uh let's say a really interesting problem to have to solve yeah i always felt like space was the hardest part of what i was doing and it's bad enough you know in the united states and probably most places Mm -hmm. but it's i don't think it's as bad 
where I've lived as it is a lot of other places. And yeah, I, my feeling is like, I'm, you know, I would like to buy a house at some point here and the housing market is just so frustrating. And it's, it's like, that's not even as bad, you know, but like, it is like, there is a supply issue. And when it comes to like specialized workspace where you're allowed to do hot work and, and all of these things that you need, you know, like you really need a bathroom, you need a certain amount of power. It needs to be something where, you know, if the, if the local officials or the city or the zoning board, if they find out, they're not going to like shut you down. Like it needs to be, you know, legitimate and appropriate. If you're getting by in a little space and that is working for you, I, you know, cause I used to have that. I had like a nearly zero overhead small space and the size of the space was my limitation, but the, yeah, um, the no, there's so many other benefits that are kind of, they, they kind of push me as well. Especially so like if you're my, at home, if that's yeah, good for you. Yeah, is 20 steps. It meant that we could sell a car. We now, so we have one car between us. Um, and I, and then we replaced the car with a cargo e-bike, which is the <laughs> best vehicle of four wheels, two wheels, any permutation you want to say it's the best vehicle I've ever bought in my life. It's amazing. That's, that's amazing. I love that. Um, yeah. So I do all my post runs on that. I go into town when I need to work and all the rest of it. And then if I do need the car, I can borrow it for a day, which yeah. is generally mostly to take my, um, my swarf to the local scrap merchant or whatever it happens to be. Um, but yeah, no, going, going from commuting. So I used to commute an hour each way every day to zero commuting and pretty much riding a bike every day now is just, I, I love it. That is absolutely. Yeah. Amazing. And you know, like in your, yeah, it, it's lovely. I think, um, you know, you can be on a growth mindset where you think like, okay, well now that I have this, I need the next step and the next step and the yeah, next step. Definitely. And that can be appropriate because sometimes you're not at a big enough stage, but when people yeah. ask me, so like, what's the next CNC machine or like, what's the next big thing? And it's like, I'm not done growing, but I'm done growing yeah. in that way for a while. Like I don't need another machine. I don't need well, another until space. You, until you buy your, uh, until you buy your life tool, tool lathe, which yeah. I know is coming. Oh, and I, I dearly want one just because they're cool, but like, I really have zero need for one at this point. Yeah. Like I would, and there's, there's new products that would allow me to make, yeah. but I don't need one for any, like, I'm not limited by the tools that I have in a meaningful way. And no, I, I agree with it. I like, I, I agree with Mo almost all of that. And if I could, if it gets to the point where I don't need two mills and I could do get away with a mill and a lathe, I think I'd be in a very similar situation. I'm currently, there's just a couple too many parts that are round mm, that I'm currently yeah. milling, which is just like, it's fine, but it's also, it's also frustrating to know how much faster they would be on a lathe. Yeah. And I, what, something that bugged me was trying to make lathe parts on a mill. Cause like my vanity, I would, there was a part in the tube bender that I, for a while, I was processing most of the work on my CNC mill and then I would put it on my manual lathe before I had a CNC lathe and I would just kind of like skim the OD and face it uh, just yeah. to like give it the appearance of being a lathe yeah, part yeah. and <laughs> I just I, it hurt me to like see it look you know because it, it's not like I had any flats on it or anything that needed to be milled so like I just wanted it to look like a dang lathe yeah, part I know what you mean yeah I, I currently so also for my seat clamps I currently mill uh, all of the barrel nuts mm-hmm. that go into the into the seat clamp where the bolt um, attaches. Uh, I was doing them today actually, and like I get I get a really good number of throughput, but I just I also can see like a a twenty millimeter sliding head or Swiss lathe sitting in the corner oh, yeah. just banging those things out. Yeah. Uh, 
yeah, I, I do spend a lot of time dreaming. Uh, you know, my dream shot. What would I buy first? Would I buy a big live, a big, um, big two-axis or even more-axis lathe, or would I get a Swiss? And I, I think weekly, I go back and forth between which one would be better and or more fun to run. Yeah, yeah. My impression on Swiss Swiss lathes is that the setups are like very tedious and very yeah. like high skill. You know, if you think like a CNC mill with like a zero point fixturing and like a tool changer and like cat cat 40 or BT 30 tool holders, the setups are really easy. And then you think yeah. like a two axis lathe, the setups are worse. And then you think of a Swiss lathe being even harder in my head, but I haven't used a Swiss lathe, so I'm not really sure. And for me, I do always such a low volume, high mix of things that any machine yeah. that has an inherently high setup is just like really hard pill to swallow. Definitely. I, I just like the idea of, um, you know, when you're not using it, it just be banging out titanium bolts or some easy, fairly yeah. low, low, low price, maybe low margin commodity part that you can just make in the, in the background. Um, yeah, that's not a bad idea. Cool. Maybe I should consider doing that with my two axis lathe when I'm not. <laughs> it sits off most of the time and it's just kind of mm -hmm. there when I need it. And, uh, you know, a couple days oh, a month. I think that means you've got a lot of capacity available. Yeah. And also it's, it's like, you know, it doesn't have a bar feeder or a parts catcher. So like I can use a bar puller on some of those parts, but it's still relatively manual. Yeah. I need to babysit it. So nice. Yeah. Well, uh, it, you know, on the podcast here, I'm always worried that I'm asking guests to be on the show too often people that I already know their story. And so I get to yeah. know them better and I get to share their story but I really yeah. didn't know you very well at all or your story. And so it's a treat to get to know you better. And it's also uh, a treat maybe that my show could be more diverse in its voices and like in who yeah. I'm interviewing. So glad to have you on the show. I appreciate you taking the time to be on here and no to sh share your work with everyone else. So uh, yeah, have a lovely weekend and uh, hope to talk to you again sometime soon. Thanks very much, Jay. Catch you soon. Yep. Bye. Cheers.